0: Who still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane
1: and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Took a shoot, fall off of the scaffolding. Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's Corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through, he'll answer questions from you. And he won the pony too. Thank you, fuck you, bye. Thank you, fuck you, bye. Thank you, fuck you, bye. Thank you, fuck you,
0: bye. Hello again, friends! And you are our friends, and welcome back to another springtime edition of Jim Cornett's drive Through, right here, wherever you may be on this day that is indeed a day where we're going to do another show. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. We have reviews, questions, we don't even know what else. But something else, I'm sure, with this man, the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornett. What are you so goddamn chipper about there, feller?
2: It's another day. We're breathing in the fresh air. Who sprinkled fairy dust on your post-toasties this morning? I had piss on mine. Was it Harley? Didn't, didn't I just talk to you? <laughs> didn't I just talk to Weren't we just talking just? Hours ago, it seems like is this real life? What the fuck? You know what this is all due, Brian? Last to your egotism, your massive ego that needs to be massaged and assuaged and and uh, assanged and whatever else you have done to your ego, because the more that programming that we have pumped out, and some of it has, some of it may have trickled, most of it's been pumped. The more programming that we have pumped out lately, the more positive feedback that we get on the internet, on the Twitter machine, on the, on the, the growing, not by leaps and bounds, but we're getting them in in a trickle, folks. The Cult of Cornette Facebook group. Everybody say, oh my God, thank you. Oh, great, Brian Last and Jim Cornette. For all the extra programming you've been doing, thank you for being on top of the breaking news. Thank you for being... There for us in our times of need when we need some entertainment because the wrestling programs ain't doing it for us. Thank you, thank you. You have taken all of those accolades and allocades to, and they've gone to your head, your massive ego, your inflated cranium there. You look like fucking brainiac. And and now and and I'm having to be drug along this ride with you, bumping on every cobblestone of the road, every Every inch of the way that you're dragging me through this with you, just so you can get put over with all the people that are praising our programming and can't get enough of it. And to all those people, I say you're welcome. All righty, it's a very it's it's a day that will live in pollen infamy around here today. Pollen, the infamy. pollen infamy, the ash. The maple and the oak tree pollens are the, the the word that was used by our meteorologist this morning was outrageous as to describe the pollen. And you're talking about spring to end. And they've been mowing yards around here. It's all flying through the air. It's, it's airborne spores from unknown origins, possibly outer space. It's going to infect us all sooner or later. So... I guess we ought to do the program while we still can. But did I mention, Brian, here at the top of the program, the cult of cornet remains the single largest force for good on the planet earth today. I feel like like we're we're all the legion of superheroes here. I of course am in the fortress of solitude, you're in the bat cave. And everybody, I, I don't know, who's hanging out with Aquaman. You have to hold your breath for a long time. Anyway, as long as we agree I'm Batman, we're good. Well, because you, you know, you do have a cave up there, and I do have a fortress up here, and <laughs> So I figured it was only right. Over six, thousand dollars has been raised on the breast cancer pink and black action figure. On sale now at jimcornett.com, over $6,000 for the American Cancer Society because we have sold over 600 figures, and every time somebody buys one, $10 is going to fight cancer, and we're going to do that. Uh, They went on sale April 8th. We're going to do the accounting at the end of the month, folks, if they last that long, or if if we sell out. Actually, geez, what is it, April? Yeah, we ain't going to last that long, maybe. But nevertheless, as soon as they're all sold or the end of the month, whichever comes first, and just to keep everybody up to date, less than 500 of the Inside the Ropes magazines remaining. The Inside the Ropes DVD featuring myself and Jim Ross at our show in London in 2016 is the fastest selling DVD that Cornet's Collectibles has ever had. So order while they're hot. As well as all the t-shirts and everything else on sale now at jimcornette.com. And I know what you're going to say. Somebody out there is going to say, well, what about if we already have ordered? What about us? You forgot about us. No, 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 we have not. Because thanks to the Featherbottom speedy service system that they've implemented, fuck the McDonald's. Those two, they were they were amateurs when it came to adopting the speedy service system. Ray Kroc took it away from them anyway. This is patented by the Featherbottoms. These things only went on sale. On April the eighth, and already, as we speak now, the first hundred orders have already been shipped, and another couple of hundred have been signed and processed, and are in the pipeline to be shipped. And we're gonna, we're gonna have at least another hundred to 150 done by the weekend, including the first batch of action figures. If you ordered the first five days of the sale and your order didn't include a figure, it'll probably be in the mail by the middle or end of next week. And uh, by then, several hundred of the figures will as well. We're cooking right along here. So, folks, it won't take as long as it historically has in the past. And you can order with impunity at the Spring Spectacular sale at jimcornett.com. And by the way, that, that money to American Cancer Society, that doesn't include, remember I mentioned it a week or two ago when he first talked about it, jacked up jeremy bagley is going to kick in i believe oh my god now it's either another 500 or a thousand when all these are sold i think he said 500 i don't want to overextend him john fell is going to kick in and several other people are involved in fundraising so again the cult of cornet right up there with Greenpeace and wolf whistle i don't know another fucking great group that does wonderful work
0: all right, well, this is the happy talk portion of the show. It's
2: your program. I just talked to you. How happy could I have made myself in the hours it's been since we last did this? Actually, I did make make myself happy between... Well, no, no, I, we won't go into that right now.
0: Uh, certainly not. I don't even know where we were going there, but where we will go right now is we'll get something out of the way, something I think you will enjoy talking about, something the listeners will enjoy hearing about, And that is your review of the latest A&E biography of WWE superstars, this one being the Iron Sheik. You know, I was looking forward
2: to this one when I uh, heard they were doing it because obviously I know the Sheik's basic story, but I had never seen has his wife or kids ever been on any video anywhere. Uh, Had had never seen them. Didn't know a lot about, you know, the details of his early life past that he was, you know, the much publicized Iranian army champion, bodyguard for the Shah, et cetera, et cetera. But they had great old pictures of, you know, his younger life in Iran before he, you know, uh, uh, even got into wrestling, uh, pro wrestling. And also, I love the... (laughs) The fucking chair they had him sitting in when they did the shots. I mean, you know, you could imagine that was 1600 and something and there was the king in Persia or whatever. But uh, I was especially... The only thing that I thought that they really skipped over in a lot of instances was, you know, the way that he morphed into the... They just went from Ali Vaziri... To the Iron Sheik, there was no Hussein Arab, Great Hussein, the different, you know, uh, ways that he evolved that. It's just what did, uh, I guess we're jumping ahead, but yeah. Greg said, you know, his his mom suggested it at dinner or whatever. But anyway.
0: His mom suggested a name. Whoever would have heard of a sheik in yeah. wrestling? What? Yeah. I want to talk about things <laughs> unmentioned in the documentary, not to take anything away from the Iron Sheik the actual Sheik, who had to be known as the original Sheik for years because of the Iron Sheik, not a mention of him. Yeah, and well, it,
2: we'll get there. Um, but it, as, as again, uh, they were back to the standard talking heads on this one. Where's Dave Zerin? Well, we need him. He did a good job. See, he he did a good job. They penalized him and never fucking use him again. Well, he grew up a Dusty fan. I'm sure he didn't like the Iron Sheik. Well,
0: like, he probably could have said something better about it than the cast of characters. You know what? More importantly, and this isn't even necessarily to take away from Sam Roberts, who clearly loves WWE, but how come WWE never has any actual experts or historians on the documentaries? Like, that's where you don't have to worry about them saying something crazy. And again, it's produced. You're going to edit out whatever you don't want. Why aren't there actual historians interviewed for these things? It would make them better. Well, because then they would, to be honest, they
2: would probably, and I've had this issue when, you know, when I've done stuff for Dark Side or Tales from the Territories or whatever, when you actually know all the details or many of the details about a given subject, it makes it harder to tell on television in 45 minutes plus commercials. So they tend to just want people to make generic statements that will just move the thing along. Uh, and, and they got a bunch of good people that to say generic things. I'll say that for them. Uh, but anyway, look at Google this for me real quick. Cause here's something they never said on the program. What year was the Sheik born? And while you're doing that, I will mention that I never knew 1942. Okay. 1942. We'll come back to that. I never knew his parents had a wrestling gym. And obviously, when he first got into business, part of the promotion of him, as they mentioned, was that he was a high-level amateur and Olympic team member and blah, blah, blah. But they went into a lot of detail here. He was the Iranian army champion, and that's one of the reasons why he was picked to be a bodyguard of the Shah and his various family members. So there he is with that you know, stoic face behind all these political figures. And I had no idea of the, because I just had never heard this story. And I guess I it was out there and I just never bothered to look for it. That the wrestling champion, what was his name? Tokti, that had mentored Sheik, and Sheik looked up to him like all the other wrestlers did in that country, he got too popular and outspoken and on the wrong side of the Shah and ended up suicided. I did not know that. That's what compelled Sheikh to say you know what maybe i ought to get out of here too because if they'll do it to him they might do it to
0: me i wish they had explained a little bit more about the actual process of him leaving i mean based on what they know and he's alive so he could tell them but it was just and all of a sudden he was on a plane to minnesota was it that easy to just leave the country to leave working for the shah and jump on yeah. a plane yeah i, I and I mean, obviously,
2: they, they kind of alluded to, and once again, with editing, because I'm sure people told this story, but Alan Rice was the Minnesota wrestling club, not the professional one, but the amateur, the wrestling club coach, and also coached the Olympic team, and he had met Kosrau in, you know, in some of these meets, and he, Sheik knew his name. And where he was, so he went there. But yeah, the process of him actually getting out of the country and getting on a plane probably got glossed over quite a bit. Right after Takti got murdered, yeah, yeah, allegedly, possibly. Well, well, maybe while everybody was investigating that, Sheikh just said, "I'll, I'll be over here." Uh, but so this was 1969, and that's why because he was already 27 years old by the time he even came to this country, and that he obviously is still amateur wrestling and again you know the it was cool that the uh the antithesis of the american hero the iron sheik from tehran iran was actually an assistant coach on our olympic te- wrestling team at one point but anyway it, it, that's where then And I can believe this, obviously. Rice being in Minnesota, um, high level amateur wrestling coach, Vern Gagne, even though it was pro wrestling, remember, folks, Vern was the NCAA amateur wrestling champion in what, 40, whatever the fuck, and was always, he sponsored. In the 72 Olympics, Ken Patera and Chris Taylor, Taylor in wrestling, Patera in weightlifting, he liked real athletes. So when he gets pitched a guy with this kind of credentials, that's why there's footage of Kaz in the uh, in the barn with Flair and Patera and Taylor and Brunzel and Sergeant Slaughter was in a couple of the clips. And that was you know, all of their entree into the wrestling business. And then, you know, that's, uh, he (laughs) broke in, hauling the ring and refereeing. Imagine that. That's what a lot of guys did. Remember we had guys doing that in OVW. Vernet Gregg doing it. Vernet Gregg doing it. Well, to be honest, the person that was most trusted not to fucking Wreck the truck or sell the trailer is usually the one who got to drive the ring truck. But if you help, if you were just on the Stooge crew helping carry the ring posts, it wasn't quite as much responsibility. But they let Cos drive the truck, and that's why I, when they first brought his wife in, I knew he was married. I, you know, never sat down again and realized it had been almost fifty years they they were together, and she looks. 30 years younger than he does now. And they've been together almost 50 years since the mid seventies. I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, but can you, there, she seems like such a nice, sweet, pleasant woman. They, you know, they say sometimes opposites attract, but, um, how I, I can't, you can't Google how old she is because, She's a private citizen, it probably wouldn't say anyway, but she looks remarkably younger than he does to have been still together for so long. So, at that, that's the point where we, you know, there's obviously not any footage really, I don't think. Maybe some AWA clips or something in Florida of Ali Vaziri, but I saw him. On uh, Nick Goulias's TV, doing jobs in 1974, when I guess he got the worst of that. Uh, Flair broke in and got sent to North Carolina, and fucking Sheik broke in and got sent to Nick in Nashville. But he was—I've—I still have the notes. He was used as a—a a job guy on television. They talked about his amateur background but not much because they were pushing his opponents but just to you know justify him being in the ring he had hair he was introduced at 215 pounds and had abs and wore the olympic wrestling singlet right it was a baby face it was a baby face ali vaziri and i i think uh he was probably i remember seeing his name and seeing him on tv and i think I've got to go back and look. He might have even been on in one of the preliminaries on one of the first garden shows I went to. Um, But nothing to speak of. He was just getting experience. And then that's where this whole thing just eliminates like five years of time, and he becomes the Iron Sheik and you know they they also conflated several time periods in the WWF because yeah it, it, well, and and you you can probably quote chapter and verse on that more than I can but it got complicated here so let's talk about what what did they leave out between 75 and 80 great hussein hussein arab texas run first time in the carolinas i think wasn't it yeah um it, that was the way that he evolved that he yes they first time he, in the northeast first time in the northeast what was it great hussein or hussein arab when he was in wwf
0: i believe technically he used both and i think he won maybe i'm wrong was it the first battle royal at madison square garden or was it i got to look into that but he he got a pretty nice little push in like 79 and he had already been
2: doing that gimmick wasn't texas the first place that he switched heel, shaved his head, and became, for all intents purposes, the Iron Sheik, but under the
0: name Hussein Arab. That's what I always thought. I have all those like, programs from 77 in Fort Worth and Dallas, and he's all over those.
2: Right, and because I was getting those, and obviously the program wasn't saying, little do you people know that three years ago, this guy was a kid named Ali Vaziri. So it surprised me that I'm like, who is this guy we've never heard of? I've never seen this guy before and he's in the main events in Texas. And then, you know, the way news traveled then and without internet, it was probably several months. And then I heard or saw or figured something out, but he looked completely unlike Ali Vaziri, who wasn't that memorable to begin with, except for the name, which kind of rolls flows off the tongue. But, Whereas, again, he in the documentary here in the biography, he realizes he needs to be a bad guy, and I think probably some of that was potential. Who would have been booking at that point in time in Texas? Was it
0: Gary Hart? Probably Gary Hart, because he's on those shows.
2: Boom goes the dynamite. Loves a foreign menace, and you know, so I'm sure if he heard, well, this guy's a a shooter, an amateur. You know, legitimate amateur great, but at the same time is Iranian and, you know, or can be from any place we're mad at over there. His mind started turning. But anyway, then all of a sudden, here's, you know, Ali Vaziri, is head shaved. He's 40 pounds bigger back then. He still was in great shape, but he put on a lot of size and he looked completely different. And he was wrestling. He didn't go as far as the the original Sheik's just craziness and two-minute match and, you know, whatever the fuck. But depending on the territory and what they wanted, he definitely, I mean, when he came to Memphis, when he and Ron Bass had a uh, bull rope match, in Louisville, he pulls a goddamn 10-inch kitchen knife that he had actually found in the back uh, that they, they'd done some catering thing or something, and it, it was halfway kind of a cake-spreading or icing-spreading thing. It wasn't really a sharp knife, but it looked great. And he pulled that out of his boot, and he saw it on Ron Bass's head. He, people are going crazy, right? He could do that, but he could also do the big high gut-wrench suplexes and all the The amateur throws that now people are used to and they're commonplace, but back then it was, and plus he could throw guys a lot higher back then. That was the thing, the sheik from her iron sheik from what, 77 to 82, three, he was still young enough and in shape enough that you could see that beast of an athlete that he was and he was scary and intimidating and violent and a way he could throw guys around and you knew not to fuck with him. And he had the fucking face and the look anyway. And then that's why I told you to look up his age because he didn't fucking turn pro until he was, he didn't start training until he was 30 and turned pro shortly after that, by the time he gets the gimmick, he's 35, and by the time 1983 rolls around, four in the WWF, he's 40, and had been on the road for a while, and was starting to develop bad habits, so, I mean, still, you know, the the Iron Sheik is a memorable gimmick, and character, and etc., for what he did in the 80s, but, The people, uh, widespread, never actually got a chance to see him when he was a fucking monster of an
0: athlete. Jim, I have a card here just to give an example. This is 1977, July 19th, 1977, Dallas. Gino Hernandez defeated Randy Colley. Skip Young defeated, I don't know this guy, you probably do, you definitely do, I'm sure, Reno Toffoli? Uh,
2: that was one of the Samoans not related to the Anawahi family Uh, remember T.O. and Tapu or yeah. T.O. and Reno yeah the Islanders yeah there you go well the Afa Isla- and Sika were the Islanders at one point too Yeah.
0: so it's confusing Ox Baker defeated Leo Seitz Big John Stud and Iron Sheik Farouk yes defeated Jimmy Snooker and Tommy Siegler and the main event Fritz Von Erich defeated Bruiser Brody to win the Texas Brass Knucks title. That's right. The earliest name was Sheik Farouk, wasn't it? I think so. You know, I forgot about that until I went and looked at the result, but that's what I saw in all those old programs. They wouldn't use Sheik Farouk, especially
2: in his first run in the WWF because of Abdullah Farouk and the Grand Wizard, and that that would have been stepping on something that Vince Sr. would have probably didn't want to do. But nevertheless, yes, so he went through several different incarnations of trying to find out what is his
0: name as this Arab character, right? Hey, can I say something to jump ahead for one second? Because I'm going to forget this. And I never knew this. You, I'm sure, once again, did. I didn't know Jerry Lawler was the one who painted Khomeini on the flag. Yes. (laughs) I never knew that. That was so cool to learn. Because, it, it, well,
2: we we it, it, we are getting ahead, but actually, that's kind of a story. Because I saw, I said, I saw Ali Vaziri as a job guy on TV in Tennessee in the seventies, right, and then. You know, we we I find out later on he is uh, the guy who became Hussein Arab, whatever the fuck, right? McKenna's become the Iron Sheik. So 1982, they bring him in the territory. Because remember, I've told, and you can look it up on YouTube, folks. The uh, the story of Sheik always had to talk on the microphone and the Kentucky Commissioner, who didn't want guys talking on the microphone, <laughs> and would try to find them. And uh, the fuck the Commissioner story, right? That's out on YouTube. Um, but the, I guess the first or second week that Sheikh was in a territory, he, because he wasn't living here yet. He was flying in from wherever he'd been and he stayed overnight in Louisville on, on a Tuesday night and needed a ride to Evansville on Wednesday. And I get teeny knew that me and my mom would be coming and see everybody else, I guess. Uh, well, number one, it was, uh, you know, it, he had to ride with heels. So that let the baby faces out and most of the heels lived in, um, Nashville. So they went back home for Evansville. And I guess Jimmy Hart wasn't around cause he was on the memph, it lived in Memphis. So he would have been going, but nevertheless, teeny says, can you and your mom take the iron chic? Like, okay. Cause like I said, he was an intimidating looking motherfucker. We'd never met him before. And at the same time, you heard the the grasp of the English language that the Sheikh has on this biography episode and he's been in this country for 50 years, right? You can imagine what it was like 40 years ago. Plus he I'm the photographer and my mom is the kindly lady that's going to be selling gimmicks at the show with the gimmick table. So it's not like he's going to talk smart and I'm smart, but I it's not I don't know him. It's not like I can just say, oh, by the way, Sheik, I'm with it. I'm with the program, as Frank Spaceman Hickey would say. I'm with it. I'm with it. So <laughs> we pick him up and uh, making conversation. Sheik, uh, what did you do today? Oh, go to gym. Work hard. Work hard. He slapped his chest. <laughs> God damn it. It's like he's on TV. I said, well, uh, you know uh, how do you how you like the territory so far, or the Louisville or Memphis? oh very good, very good and he you know he asked my mom or me a question about as we'd pass something, what is that or whatever, but finally, as I recall he he said, "So we're just driving down the road, right, The conversation is strained. uh, a uh, Mrs. Cornette, do you like the rock and roll music?" <laughs> Yeah, yes, would you like to hear the radio? And we'd turn the radio on. So he was a very a pleasant, respectful person with a, you know, like I said, limited grasp of language. And, and we couldn't really talk about it. He asked me more questions about this territory than I asked him. It'd be like, is this good town in Evansville tonight? Well, it's <laughs> you know that kind of thing what do i say i don't Then he's gonna go and say oh cornet yeah the kid photographer says this fucking town sucks <laughs> i'm like well it's not as big as louisville or memphis or nashville or jackson tennessee or lexington but they have a post office they do <laughs> <laughs> well i'm just talking about the crowd the house the gate <laughs> The money, the <laughs> money is what he was looking for. And then, and it was in Evansville a night that, remember, Jimmy, it won't strike, it won't strike. <laughs> the, fire story. the fireball, yes. yeah. <laughs> His fucking lighter got wet. <laughs> Oh, but anyway, um, no, no, it was in Louisville that Sheik's fire wouldn't go, and it was in Evansville that Lawler's wouldn't go, because that's when Lawler chased him all around the Evansville Coliseum, flicking the fucking big <laughs> lighter in his face, because they'd already cut to promos. <laughs> Nevertheless, so it, it, you know, but that was the thing, is this guy completely, you know, between the time he got into business and the late 70s, completely transformed himself to even, you know, people close around the business didn't really know what the fuck it was. And then he's got this gimmick and, and that's what I liked, especially Georgia, the Georgia TV, Georgia championship wrestling, um, the early run that he had there in what was it? 81, 82. He was moving a lot quicker and, you know, he was, a lot of people don't. Remember the Iron Sheik for his flying elbow smash and all that other stuff. But no, he he can fucking move. But then he's he's forty, and after that, you know, the the hostage crisis also for people who didn't live through it. That's why his heat was nuclear because oh, that's where Nightline came from. Um That's, that's right. where you know Nightline originated on ABC as what was it, America held hostage day 340, however long it lasted, they had a a special news program every night updating America on what was going on with our people in Iran. And say what you want about Kaz, he had fucking balls, as everybody said on the documentary, that he leaned into this shit. And anything that he could do to make himself more believable he wasn't scared of anybody and oh and you <laughs> mentioned the the Lawler flag yeah when, when he came in the territory he had the Iranian flag and he used it for first few weeks I can't remember I wasn't taking notes and then suddenly the Khomeini popped up and and I got I have pictures with him and Jimmy Hart uh with that Flag spread out and Jimmy was rolling his eyes afterwards, like, I'm gonna take pictures of this fucking thing. gonna be killed.
0: Yeah, you know uh, what you know seemingly had no worries about any of the heat? Fred Blassie appears to be having a party as Paul oh Blassy. Oh,
2: yes. <laughs> no. Fred Blassie. <laughs> let me tell you when he was 70 years old, if a motherfucker had come with Fred Blassie, come at Fred Blassie with a machete, said, I'll cut your guts out from he would come on, man. He'd have picked his teeth with it. Fred Blassie loved that shit. He was a salty. That motherfucker was a wrestler in the 30s. He was, wasn't he in the Navy too? (laughs) He was born in the 19-teens for fuck's sake. He probably used to eat rotten cow livers from the street. What are you talking about? (laughs) I mean, they had nothing. (laughs) Oh, Freddie Blassie, my God. (laughs) Back when men were men and sheep were scared. I'm telling you. And well, and then I was about to mention they they went through all of his various gimmicks. he did every gimmick associated with you know a sheikh or a you know a Persian person or the Persian club challenge, which was legitimate. He could do that with the real clubs when it first became a thing in wrestling and then I think toward the latter few years that he ever did it. Either somebody stole the clubs or he just made gimmick clubs. They weren't as heavy, but whatever.
0: But even those gimmick clubs only he could do. I saw shows where in the locker room guys couldn't do
2: it. Well, I mean, I I saw a couple. I think it might have been on a couple of Dennis Corluzo shows that looked like they... Fucking found some duct tape and a goddamn couple of bricks and put it together. I but don't know what it was. But- <laughs> the original ones from from the late seventies, early eighties, when he'd go through the territory. No, it was a it was a big deal that the guys in the locker room and we're talking, you know, road warrior level people, size people. Think of the size of guys in the early eighties in the business. And it wasn't just the weight; it was a technique that he could do and get them spinning, and they couldn't fucking do it. And the loaded boot, the curly... Co- but see, that's the thing. The, the But the boot itself. The boot came from the Sheik. And that's the right. camel clutch came from the Sheik. Now, of course, the Iron Sheik set back much farther on the camel clutch because, you know, he didn't give a shit. Whereas I guess the Sheik was like, well, I won't break their backs, I'll just slice them open.
0: But uh, but it all came from the Sheik. When he tells that story about getting the boots, he's like, I called the person, I said, can you make me something like these. And they said, yes, obviously the part of the story that he's not saying, or was said right before they cut that clip was I saw the Sheik's boots. Yes. And I wanted something like these.
2: And that's what um, he did. And, and he, then he called Bill Ash in <laughs> fucking Paris, Arkansas and said, make me some chic boots. Was the Sheik the first one to wear the pointy toed boots?
0: I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I wonder, and and hey, for our Toronto historians. Brian Solomon may know. Poor Brian
2: Solomon, who's a historian from everywhere. Oh, oh what was the goddamn heel in uh, Nanjo Singh in Toronto in the 40s? Did he do pointy boots? We shall see. We'll find out now that we've said it out loud. A nice reminder that Jeff Jarrett was a senior vice president of
0: the WWE at at the time this was done, what, last year? I guess. He was great in this. I thought Jeff Jarrett was tremendous in this, and for the first time, for me at least, watching him talk, not that I I saw or heard Jerry, but he reminded me a lot of his dad. Yeah. But I thought he was tremendous in this. And, you know... (laughs) jeff actually you know was
2: around and saw some of this stuff so he could actually and was in the business so he could speak firsthand so it, it's always good if they would pick the talking heads that at least were al-
0: alive breathing oxygen when this shit happened anyway um but you said before how it jumped around a lot that was my biggest problem with the documentary the early portion was completely fascinating everything and i ran and everything yeah that led up to him leaving the early stuff with Ganya, we've heard a lot of that stuff, but it's still really cool. Then for like 15 years, they just go back and forth and they'll stop telling anything in timeline and just start talking about like a specific thing like the camel on his trunks or his boots or whatever it is, and then go back to something else. It became incoherent at a certain point. Well, yes, if if you we're trying to follow the progression of his career.
2: Or if you knew the story, you're like, well, I guess they just weren't going to talk about that. And then they start talking about it after they've talked about shit that happened afterwards. And that's where basically it, and and they've got all the footage. It fell apart when he went to the WWF and 1983 and wins the title and then lose to Hogan. It, it falls apart chronologically. You know, they, they have the match with Hogan and, Vern offers chic a hundred thousand dollars to
0: break Hogan's leg. um do you think Vern would have paid it because once he does that, if he doesn't have the money in hand, I mean what's Vern's real incentive? He's just trying to hurt Vince
2: well, I think more importantly, Vern would have got what he wanted and not be liable because since he never actually paid him, he wouldn't be huh. guilty, right? yeah,
1: that's
0: true,
2: yeah. So I don't know if I'd have trusted. I would ask for fifty up front if I was Kazrav, but he wasn't going to do it. But, but anyway,
0: if you but if you were Vern Gagne, do you think he must have thought that the Iron Sheik would have done it because of the loyalty to him? I th- I
2: think he did because I think he also thought that because Sheik being a legitimate wrestler and Vern just being incensed at what. You know, Vince was trying to do in the whole nine yards. He he thought that, you know, well, hey, I broke you in and, you know, we have similar backgrounds and they're, you know, pulling all this tomfoolery. We got to pull them
0: in line here. Little known fact, after Vern said, break Hogan's leg, I'll give you $100,000. He said, I'll give you a five grand if you shave off Gene Okerlund's mustache. <laughs> now that I think Sheik would have collected on. Um, But
2: the point I was going to make, and that you had made before me, is that after he loses the belt to Hogan, suddenly they go into Sheik and Slaughter. Did that, am I, do I have a brain tumor, or was that not two years
0: beforehand? Oh, no, 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 that was, Hogan won the title in January 84, they started Slaughter, Sheik just a couple months later, just a few months later. Did they? Yeah. Okay, then what am I thinking about? You're thinking... Well, again, Slaughter was in there in 80, he feud with Patterson in 81, goes back to Mid-Atlantic, the Greensboro match is the beginning of 83, returns to the WWF as a heel.
2: Okay, you know what, I've, I've had the alley fight match and the boot camp match yeah. switched around. And then in the, the...
0: the boot camp match, I think, is like May or June, maybe May of 84. That's what it, okay.
2: Then I apologize. I do apologize when I am incorrect. It happens so infrequently. Uh, but again, the besides the fact that is the question answered, who was the best worker of the early '80s overall in the WWF? It was Sergeant Slaughter. Holy mackerel! Because not only was him and Patterson the alley fight, maybe the best match of the WWF days as a territory. But this boot camp match, Slaughter taking those bumps, I love that fucking ring post bump he takes over the top buckle in the whole nine yards. But these had to be, or those had to be, the two most violent WWF matches in history. They they could have worked in Greensboro or New Orleans or Memphis or whatever. Um, Just that the blood and the intensity and the violence, they got away with it up there somehow.
0: Well, you know, again, those two matches, beyond the boot camp match and the alley fight match, what's the other big, really bloody WWF brawl-type match you could think of within 15 years around that? Good question. You know, seven and a half years before it, seven and a half years, I can't think of one. So that's why they didn't allow it, I guess. That's based off. That's (laughs) (laughs) based off. So that that to go to your point about if they allowed it or not was yeah. very very rare,
2: and uh, and boy, I'll tell you what. One thing that is correct, we all heard contemporaneously, as they say at the time, about the Sheik's eighty thousand dollar check for fucking action figures for a quarter. That went through
0: every locker room in the business. Um, remember he was one of the initial five figures they put out. Yes, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant. Jimmy Snooker, Big John Stud, and the Iron Sheik, And to the fears you always had about we're heels, we wouldn't sell figures. If you buy a babyface figure, you need a heel for them to wrestle. He's gotta beat somebody up. So if you bought a Hulk Hogan, you needed an Iron Sheik or a Big John stud. So what
2: eighty grand in nineteen eighty five would probably be what? Uh, almost a quarter of a million today for a quarter, for one quarter of the year.
0: 80 grand and 85 would be approximately $224,400 today. Well, see there? Approximately,
2: not counting the cents or anything. And then I liked seeing the footage of Sheikh and Nikolai Volkov. Nikolai had just come from Mid South. And boy, what a nice guy. Just again, I'll take a sidetrack here to just say Nikolai Volkov, one of the nicest guys in the history of the business. And. He was, gosh, I guess he had to be almost 50 at that point. He was, you know, on the tail end of his in-ring career. But he had been a high-level amateur boxer at that size and those big fucking hands. And he was incredibly strong. And, you know, even though he wasn't taking the the bumps he did as a youth at that point in time, Nikolai was somebody you wouldn't want to fuck with for real and still the nicest guy in the world and always joking and laughing. But it was when they talked about them always getting on each other's nerves is because Sheik took a part of it was the, you know, the language barrier or the culture barrier or him coming over in his mid thirties. He took things literally or seriously or reacted to things same in a different way and Nikolai is such a fun loving guy. I can see where they could have nattered at each other and it would have been hilarious. And I think that's what the boys said. It was hilarious watching them fucking go at each other. And then of course the New Jersey turnpike incident with Hacksaw Duggan who had just come in, just debuted in the and they get pulled over uh, and make national news because do you think it? Everybody knows that story. I would say, except that there's been so many kids born in the last 30 years or whatever. Does everybody still remember that it made national news because they caught a good guy wrestler and a bad guy wrestler
0: in the, riding in a car together? You know, they showed some of the newscast footage, which I thought was pretty impactful, but. No one really, they tried to, but it's really hard to lay out just how big a deal it was to non-wrestling fans or people who didn't like wrestling to all of a sudden see this article in the paper. This was everything that a wrestling fan or let alone someone in the business cringed about. And I believe Jim Duggan has said Vince McMahon, when he got on the phone with him the next day, the only words he said, I think, were, what have you done to us, Jim? Yeah. They thought this was going to be the end. Duggan thought he was cooked and, uh, Bo- and he was Bo- for a while. And he yeah. was for a while. Paul Bosch got him back or that Paul Bosch show got him back in the, uh, I'm trying to think how long
2: was it before Vince used either guy again?
0: It was Duggan was gone until I think the end of 87. Cause again, after the Paul Bosch retirement show is when he came back. Yeah. The Sheik, I want to say he briefly returned briefly in 88. But he may have worked for Vern in between, and then he obviously came back to the NWA at the end of '88, early '89, and he was under contract there for two years. And then, as <laughs> soon as that contract yeah. was up, and they didn't automatically renew it because they forgot he existed, <laughs> he became Colonel Mustafa in the WWF.
2: Okay. Right? Well, uh, the the point is, for the purpose of this exercise, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't Duggan's cocaine; it was Sheik's cocaine. But it wasn't the drugs; it was the fact that they were caught together in the car, a baby face and heel while they were in a program that was considered such a black eye to the business and to Vince's business in general that Sheik was gone for a year, briefly returned, and Duggan was gone and didn't get the chance to come back and become the American hero, hi and all that stuff. Uh, until he, you know, tore the house down at the Paul Bosch show, which you would expect he would, because it was Houston, and they loved him. And Vince saw that. well, I've missed out on something
0: here. But that's what kind of offense it was. And again, it's not just a babyface and a heel. It's the Iranian heel and the all-American babyface. Yes.
2: It's as bad a situation
0: as you could have. If it
2: had been Barry Horowitz and... Steve Lombardi. You know, Steve Lombardi. <laughs> there have been a fact people, well, now, wait a minute. Did they wrestle on TV once? We don't know. We don't care. But no, it was the epitome of who shouldn't have been in the same place.
0: Duggan was funny, too, saying, I called my wife that night after the show that we went to, and I said, nobody knows, it's great. Yes, and then she called yeah. me the next day She said, everybody knows. Everybody knows.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. And as a matter of fact, in Hacksaw, another guy, still with the same wife that he had in the well she was his girlfriend in the 80s but nevertheless same person but anyway so that was all they they the Iron Sheik era and things just kind of was back and forth they were showing Georgia and then this and that and the other thing but we we skipped his formative years we got the Iron Sheik run there in the 80s and then as you just mentioned He lost his spot, um, went to WCW for George Scott for those two years. (laughs) George Scott gets the job as booker, signs the Iron Sheik to a $100,000 a year contract. George Scott gets fired in three months. Uh, Sheik gets paid for two years. But anyway, um, we got in another war, and that gave him another lease on life with the Gulf War, but with this time as— Colonel Mustafa with Adnan Kazi, who is now Adnan's really from Iraq, right? He was really an Iraqian. He, I believe, was legitimately was, a Saddam Hussein supporter, actually. Yes. And uh, so, even though Iran and Iraq have had their issues with each other, for the purpose of this, which was to piss the American people off at Sergeant Slaughter, who had become a sympathizer, they've got. One guy from Iran and one guy from Iraq, I've never understood why as iconic a face as the Iron Sheik was called Colonel Mustafa, although I did not see all the weekly TV. Did they explain it, or just, this is what his name is now?
0: I was 11 watching it, and they referenced that it had been the Iron Sheik, and clearly you knew who it was if you just even watched the cartoon. You knew who he was, but they called him Colonel Mustafa. It seemed kind of silly, unless the goal was to just put him in something that can cover up his body for a good portion of the match. I'm not sure. But it seemed to me as a kid to be silly, because we knew it was the Iron Sheik. It wasn't even about necessarily the Iran-Iraq thing, because again, I was young. Right. But we knew he was the Iron Sheik. Why is he Colonel Mustafa?
2: (laughs) Well, only Vince knew, but it didn't last long. Uh, They they didn't just gloss over, they outright skipped the WrestleMania LA Coliseum debacle in 91 and went straight to SummerSlam.
0: That's good. It gave them a chance not to lie about why they had to move yes. the show out of the uh, stadium. And then I, my my note on the SummerSlam 91 tag match highlights
2: was God, Sergeant Slaughter was good. Just what I don't think he's rated highly enough by the modern audience because he came just a little bit before everybody started paying attention to things like that. Uh, but then (laughs) 1996 and he's back as kind of the, the co-manager or whatever the fuck. And that's, I was in the office folks and it was like, well, it's chic, you know? Oh, geez. And he's, uh, at that point he's, uh, what? 50 and, or, you know, no, 50, 50, almost 55. And they even mentioned he was struggling financially. And then, I don't know about this one. They said, well, at this at this point or somewhere around this time frame, he was exposed to crack cocaine at an independent show. I don't know if there had been anything that Sheik hadn't been exposed to at that point in time. Um, But the, the story was true about WrestleMania 17 because we were joking about it. When we heard the finish, everybody said, "Oh, Sheik's winning because he can't, you know, take the bump over the top." And and whoever it was was telling us, I can't even remember who the agent was or whatever. Said, "No, that's actually it. Yeah, he can't. He can't. He can't take it." Oh God. Okay. And uh, and Bobby got the line. By the time he gets to the ring, it'll be WrestleMania 37. But at that point, you know, that was pretty much. I mean, he, Sheikh had a lot of injuries that had piled up, and a lot of miles, and etc. And he's almost sixty, so he's out of the wrestling business in terms of being in the ring. And there weren't the, that many fan fests like there are now all over the place, or indie promotions that were just booking legends to come in. But they, it seemed like that they wanted to gloss over the level of. Or at least the length of the period of time that it seemed like poor Sheik was just fucking. We thought he was being taken advantage of by that sleaze ball. Who was his agent? Eric Sims. Eric Sims. But he obviously he was everywhere on video and on the Stern show and on, you know, early social media video or whatever the fuck. Just It seemed like that he was in a bad way and was being taken advantage of for his name or his reputation or a meal ticket or whatever by somebody.
0: The Brian Blair thing is what took off. If you remember, he did an interview where he just went completely off on Brian Blair when talking about that WrestleMania three match. Yeah. And that went viral before that was really a thing. And then again, he was on Howard Stern a lot. He kind of became mixed in with that crowd of uh, comedians and oddballs. So there was a whole nother life to him. And, you know, I guess the argument is what's exploitation versus what's trying to find a way for this guy to make a living.
2: Well, I always thought it might be a good idea if they didn't try to put him out to make a living in public when he's ingested various different types of narcotics that may be
0: causing him to act in a way he might regret later on. What do you think in general of wrestling agents? Uh, I'm not talking about like Barry Blousty, or not Barry, but Bla- Barry Bloom or, uh, Barry Blousty. No, I think no, he no. should go
2: back to Hollywood.
0: I'm not talking about Barry Bloom or Braverman or any, but like these guys who are on the indies that are agents that, you know, any thoughts on these? Cause you've probably encountered a bunch of them. Well, yeah. And I don't want
2: to, I don't want to piss at anybody's post toasties myself, but I, I mean, Bill Barron's is uh, legitimate and has been around for a long time and knows everybody and has talked to everybody and loves, talk to everybody and has the energy to do stuff like that. He's, he's a great guy. I can't honestly call anybody else off the top of my head right now that I know is agenting that I would praise. Uh, and the only time that I ever let anybody do that for me at any show was this fucking guy called and, just uh, bugged me uh, on a number of occasions, and I said, no, New Jersey's too far, and this is too far, and that's too far. I don't want to come there. I don't want to do that. And finally, calls up and says, how about Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana? All right. I the, Here's what I want. This, this, and this. If you'll set it up with the guy running the show, and you take care of all the details, then I'll give you fucking 20% or whatever, and you help me at my booth. Simple as I can fucking make it, right? He got there, he'd fucked the whole thing up, and the promoter didn't know what the fuck was going on, <laughs> and I had to I had not only cuss the guy out, I had to call him on a, he had, had had me and somebody else there, and he said, I gotta take so-and-so to the airport, and I I called him on his phone, I said, I know where you're at because you put me at the same hotel, And I'll see you later if you don't come back here because you owe me some fucking money because this guy didn't know he was supposed to give me the money that you told me that he was going to give me. And when the guy got back, I went out in the parking lot with the fucking racket (laughs) and and I said, just hand me the goddamn money. And he handed me the money. I said, don't ever speak to me again (laughs) and walked back in. And it looked like I just fucking strong armed him if somebody was standing around, but nevertheless, no agents now do your own business. But nevertheless, the point is that they they tended to gloss over obviously the length and severity of what Sheik's issues were, and, and they had him at the 2005 Hall of Fame ceremony, which I think all this stuff was still going on at that point, and then told the story that you know his wife finally left him because he wouldn't get off of drugs, and then he got off of drugs, and and so now he is. He'll be eighty-one this old, eighty-one years old this year if he's not already. I would assume he's and he's not on the road much anymore. So I would assume that he's hopefully doing well on that score. But it was a, like you said, it was a fascinating program, especially the first part. And then his wrestling career—they just kind of bounced back and forth, and not a lot with any specificity. Nor they just—he started. They skipped five years where he figured this gimmick out. He became the Iron Sheik because Vern Gagne's wife suggested it. (laughs) He ran with that for seven or eight years, got a couple of comebacks. That's what you would know from this, and he did a lot more
0: than that. I'm sure if he was eating dinner at some other promoter's house, he could have been the Silver Sheik or maybe the Golden Sheik. (laughs) But he was the Iron Sheik. No, I remember there was a Golden Sheik, wasn't there? Who was that? Who was that? I remember the golden
2: Superman. And there was also the golden lion. And there was also a masked man called the golden hawk. There was a golden terror. He was also masked. Yeah. And there was also a golden shower. Where was that?
0: Apparently in Japan. Meltzer gave it seven stars. (laughs) I don't know how you got there, but as I was (laughs) saying, a wonderful uh, documentary, even though there are a lot of issues with uh, their management of time and telling a coherent story. I put down before that they don't get experts and stuff. Keith Elliott Greenberg did a good job. I should say that, too. Yes, yes. And he was actually alive then. And even Jake... Well, I think Keith Elliott Greenberg, didn't he actually... Maybe I'm getting the story wrong. Did he actually did a biography of the Iron Sheik and WWE shelved it? Did you ever hear I that? Don't, I
2: don't remember. He's done several. I don't know if... uh. If that would have been one of them, but I realized when I was watching this that there's not been an Iron Sheik book, so
0: maybe that's why. Yeah, I'll look into that. I think that's the story I heard, but that was the Iron Sheik biography on A&E, and you know, when the Sheik finally grew that mustache, what a liberating moment that must have been to finally say, I'm not going to shave, I'm going to grow this mustache, I'm going to grow it so long I can twirl it like Raleigh fingers, he probably looked in the mirror and said, my future is so bright, I got to wear shades. I wondered how hair was going to get us (laughs) to any, but facial hair was
2: merely the MacGuffin. That's right. (laughs) Wild
0: card.
2: (laughs) Wild card bitches. I'll tell you what, if there's anybody that you'd like to, to not get a good look at, if there's anybody that you'd like to put some kind of covering over your eyes before you look in their general (laughs) direction because of the repulsiveness of their appearance and the fact that they give small children nightmares and scare house pets. <laughs> well, folks, don't buy a, an expensive pair of sunglasses and put them on and try to shade yourself from all of that ugly dripping all over somebody's face. No, you don't want the expensive ones when you get Shady Rays because Shady Rays makes high-quality sunglasses that are just as good or even better than the expensive ones at a fraction of the price and. They're durable. I'm talking about unbreakable. I'm talking about, I don't care how ugly your wife or husband or mother or father or children may be. You look at them with these shady rays on, they will not crack. They will not break. I'm telling you, as a matter of fact. Of course not. Well, hey, you can even look at Hotchkiss Featherbottom and his Aunt Fanny and Uncle Felcher, and these things will not break normally anybody with any glasses on immediately loses their lenses when they look at the feather bottoms and these things are so durable so unbreakable that chris rock could have been wearing these at the oscars last year and will smith wouldn't even have broken the earpieces that's how durable and 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 impact resistant that the shady rays are and they've got to be even the earpieces even the well the things that go over your ear what are they do they have a technical term for those you've been wearing glasses your whole life you should know this well okay you've had a face your whole life what do you call (laughs) those two little things right under your nose and above your lip yeah see i have no idea nevertheless well see there do you know of course i do shady rays isn't (laughs) happy unless you're happy folks And I'm telling you, that's why they've got the industry leading lost and broken replacement program. If you break or lose your pair, even the second you take them out of the box, now obviously that would have to be willful. If you break or lose them the second you take them out of the box, you're doing it on purpose. You're being a prick. Go ahead and admit it. But they will send you a replacement pair, no questions asked. Now, also, here's the thing if you don't like them, You can exchange them or return them for free. And to be honest, they've got a special deal going right now where if you buy one pair of Shady Ray's, you get a second pair for free. And they come covered under this guarantee also. I'm thinking that some enterprising son of a bitch out there is going to figure out a way to work this into getting 700 free pairs of Shady Ray's. But every, it'll be worth it because everybody else will have high-quality sunglasses that will protect their eyes from the, from the burning, the searing pain. Do you know what it's like, Brian, when you look up at the sun and that, that molten lava on the hottest surface in the universe bears down on your corneas and your eyeballs, no. your pupils start smoking? No, I don't stare at the sun. Why would anyone well, do that? Oh boy, you gotta try it sometime. What a what? rush. And what? I'm telling you, yeah. that your pupils start smoking. What a and rush. And All of a sudden, flames leap up from your from your eyelashes, and it's uncomfortable. But if you got shady rays on, you can stare right at that thing no. for hours on end. No, Go if- ahead, try it. No
0: damage whatsoever. Let's just jump in right now, ladies and gentlemen, and say. That is something you shouldn't do, whether wearing shady rays or not. Never stare at the surface of the sun. Never look at the sun directly. Even if you're wearing shady rays, which are such fine glasses, but even the finest of sunglasses, don't look at the sun, ladies and gentlemen. Don't make eye contact is what you're saying with
2: the sun. That's right. Bitch. All right. Keep your eyes down.
0: (laughs) And I'll tell you what. The... the, the, What are you going to tell me? You'll tell me what? Let me hear you. Well, you hear it right here, folks. Obviously, Jim's been staring at the sun, and he's melting right now inside of his head. I'll tell you something here in a minute. Shady Rays. (laughs) (laughs) Bitch. (laughs) Shady Rays. Let's get back to them, though. They're fantastic. Not shady at all. So, Shady Rays... (laughs)
2: The impact, the, the program that they have here on this program is the Shady Rays Impact Program. Is what I'm saying works with nonprofits. Oh my God, I'm dizzy. Worldwide to make an impact on the lives of children and young adults. If you'd like to make an impact on the life of a children or young adult, you've got to buy Shady Ray sunglasses. They build play sets for pediatric cancer patients. They create adventures for young adults with cancer in Mississippi. Or that's cancer and MS. I'm sorry. Cancer and MS, not cancer in Mississippi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) See, this is not funny. Cancer and MS are not funny. No. And neither is Mississippi.
2: Well, no, Mississippi is fucking bone serious. I've been there. They'll cut you. But anyway, folks, right now, what's better than getting one pair of Shady Rays and not worrying if you break or lose them? Getting two pairs and not worrying. Just be frivolous with them. Because it doesn't matter. They'll be replaced until the end of time. Take care of your glasses. Take care of your sunglasses. No, just fucking kick them, stomp them, slap them around. No. Fucking drag them down the street behind a bumper. We don't encourage that. Well, we can't stop it. Go to (laughs) ShadyRays.com. Slash J. (laughs) Go to ShadyRays. I'll spell that for you people. S-H-A-D-Y-R-A-Y-S ShadyRays.com D-O-T-C-O-M Slash S-L-A-S-H J-C-E ShadyRays.com Slash J-C-E Use the code J-C-E For a limited time Possibly until they hear this spot When you buy one pair of Shady Rays You're going to get a second pair for free So spend Very little money on one, get another pair for free, and that's four times as good as buying two of the expensive ones. So you got a 33% chance of coming out ahead.
0: Shady Rays. That's right, Shady Rays. And of course, we support Shady Rays, despite any of the things that were said during that spot. We encourage everyone to check them out. And I'm curious, Jim, if you think the listeners should check out the newest episode of A&E's WWE Rivals, which dealt with the Hulk Hogan-Roddy Piper rivalry. I guess, in the ring and out of the ring.
2: The Roddy Rivalry. Rr rawr, 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 Um, yes. As a matter of fact, obviously, again, this one is worth it for the footage alone, because, you know, even though we've seen most of these things, it's nice to go back when you haven't seen it done to death, like it's been in the modern era. the The 80s stuff, the fucking people going berserk, etc., um... But with this one, they only had 45 minutes, plus they've got to have the panel of experts that none of them were alive
0: when it happened to talk about it. And it doesn't add anything to the documentary.
2: No, but that's the concept of their program. So, nevertheless, um, I, I again, they, they have to make these programs somewhat also for the casual viewer. They... Um, Explained the concept of the territories while they showed all the, the logos, mid South, AWA, blah, blah, blah. And they had some Hulk footage in the AWA. And then I love it. How it th- it's at this point in every one of the programs where they explain how Vince McMahon ruined fucking pro wrestling by going national and running all the territories out of business. Like it was, it's this glowing thing. Like, yes, he put all of us out of work. Uh, Hulk wins the title, and then he's got to have somebody to to work with. And Roddy's first quote, I loved it when it, the sit down interview they had from what was it, 2014. Uh, he said he basically would tell people, "Go fuck yourself, have a nice day, give me the microphone, and get out of my way." And that's what he needed to get over. And and that was true. You know, we've talked about it before. Is Piper was one of those guys that all you needed to do was put him on TV with a microphone, and even if, if if it was a match, if he could still grab the microphone, he could
0: do both at the same time. But um. But they I'll left guess- out the fact that when they brought him in, he was as much a manager as he was a wrestler, with David Schultz and Paul Orndorff, and then of course right. hosting Piper's Pit. It wasn't like they brought him in and set up things right away for Hogan. Hogan had a whole year where he really didn't feud with anyone. He wrestled Big John Sud in one town, Iron Sheik in another town, Nikolai Volkov in another town, while Piper was working the Jimmy Snuka program, which started in the spring, but then some delays because of Snuka's problems. But they didn't lay any... Th- it was just kind of like, Vince got this guy, and then Vince got this guy, and they were on a collision course.
2: Well, it, exactly. Cause like 45 minutes plus commercials, but that's where I was going with... Sam Roberts was kind enough to give us Roddy's background, and this was the description. He'd made a name for himself in Mid-Atlantic and Portland, and then suddenly he's there in, in 10 seconds. Roddy Piper, and, but nevertheless. And part of the reason, we I think we've talked about this before, I don't know that Vince, everybody was, I'm sure, telling him that Roddy Piper was incredible and needed to be there immediately. Like we used to, to say with people like Mick Foley in 1996, but in, in Mick's case, he didn't like his body or his face. In Roddy's case, I'm sure he didn't like his size. So he was probably hedging his bets, Said, well, if he can talk, let's, you know, let him be a kind of a player coach type of thing. Well, which was fine because all Roddy needed to get over was put him on TV and give him a microphone. So it it worked that way, but yes, they glossed over Roddy's, you know, canon of work, as well as, boom, he was just there at about 15 seconds. But did I mention they only got 45 minutes plus commercials? So... I love the the again the footage of Piper breaking the gold record over Albano's head and kicking Cindy Lauper and power slamming Dave
0: Wolf. Uh but we you know we And the cop that gets in the ring is a shoot. If you watch it, yes. there's a cop who gets in there to get Piper away from them. This guy was so bothered at ringside he had to hop in the ring. <laughs> and the garden.
2: Looked so much better in those days, whether it be the first WrestleMania or the war to settle the score. The MTV footage, they had a wrestling setup. There wasn't a giant Titantron. There wasn't a fucking stage that took up half the building. There wasn't a giant twenty-foot-wide entranceway. The fucking NYPD brought you from the side entranceway into the into the garden to the side of the ring, and there you were. And there were people from six feet away from the ring all the way around and it made it tough on managers but boy it looked great on camera did you like the piper versus hogan match footage when they did the dueling eye rakes and neither one would sell
0: (laughs) that's right the war to settle the
2: score uh, but it, at the same time, Hogan was trying to cut Piper off with an eye rake and Piper I'm sure was like, fuck you. You're the baby face. I'm the one that rakes the ice. He'd rake Hogan's back <laughs> and Hogan didn't want to sell cause he's trying to cut Piper off and he'd rake Hogan's or he'd rake Pipers. But then they actually made a, you know, made public talked about, made a topic. The fact that Roddy was not going to do a job. And was not because, because the thing is, if Roddy had Roddy was smart enough to know that in those days, especially when wins and losses really mattered to whether you were a top guy or not, and especially to a heel that had heat, he wasn't a chicken shit heel. He wasn't the kind of like a Dominic Mysterio that you can beat and still come out with his heat. He was he was unique in that he was that smartass fucking obnoxious promo but when he got in the ring and you saw him work he could back shit up he was just out of control and that's what a lot of the people edge you know made a point of saying that when you saw piper you never knew what was going to happen cuz he didn't and but just so much of the stuff that he did drew money and was good, that he got a lot of leeway to do it. But he would never do the job in that spot because he knew that it would harm his mystique. So they tried to act like that. To be honest, I don't think that the finish of WrestleMania One was ever going to be anybody but Orndorff doing the job anyway because it wouldn't have made sense there. I'm not saying that Hogan didn't want to get a A goddamn job out of him later on in a single match but they tried to make the Wrestlemania tag match finish that it was cheating the people somehow because it was or the um, the war to settle a score was a DQ and then the Wrestlemania tag match was beating Orndorff and that was kind of cheating the people no a DQ on the MTV show was exactly what they needed to do because that was what six weeks before Wrestlemania And then they've got the tag match, and Orndorff can drop the fall, as he did when Orton made a miscue, and then you've still got Hogan and Piper.
0: And again, their big plan was to turn Orndorff babyface after that, which is what they did. He ended up firing Bobby Heenan, who had never actually been his manager, which was a weird thing. Yeah. (laughs) And then he feuded with Piper. And, and then, and... I don't think Piper did a job for him either. (laughs) What Uh, a bundle of just nervous energy watching Orndorff. You can't take your eyes off him in that era.
2: Yeah. He was always moving and what a fucking, again, what a tough guy. And he was a tough guy. I took his rookie pictures when he came to, I just found a few of them when he came to uh, Tennessee, when Eddie Graham sent him up to Jerry Jarrett to give him some experience. And he was, he had a great body. He was had the blonde hair and the Florida beach guy look to where the women loved him. And he was a legitimate tough guy on the level of a Dr. Death or a Terry Gordy, all in one package. And then became a fantastic worker. But yeah, all those finishes were it wasn't like Piper was depriving anybody because he wouldn't do a job in those instances. It was that's was what was right anyway. But the thing is that Hogan had to get across. He was depriving Hogan. He was depriving Hogan, and Hogan never did get during that run when it meant anything till WCW years later. He never got what he wanted. And Piper not only was successful without doing a job for Hulk Hogan in the WWF through the rest of the 80s, except for his breaks for movies and major motion pictures and thickcoms. Uh, because he didn't do a job for Hogan, he stayed at that fucking iconic level. Did you notice again, again, they never... you can, you he, They can't edit Snuka out of the WrestleMania match footage, but they never mention his name and never mention him having any part in it. Just like uh, Orton was in the corner of the heels, Snuka was in the Korndorf... Korndorf. The Korndorf! <laughs> the The
0: corner. <laughs> Of the heels, the Korndorf. Jack Pfeffer the, presents Paul Korndorf. Korndorf.
2: He was in the corner of the baby faces with Snuka to offset Orton, uh, but they never mentioned him anymore. And also, was it, I understand the story was at the time, in case Mr. T flaked at the last minute, Snuka was kind of involved. He was billed as being in the corner where he could have stepped in if he had to. And and also because Snuka had been the most popular yeah. wrestler in the world before Hogan two years previously. And Pat Patterson was the referee, again, because if anything went wrong, in the biggest match that Vince McMahon had ever promoted with that much riding on it, he wanted the smartest guy that he had in the ring to try to fucking keep it out of the shitter. But, um... But so, Snuka's there in video, but is never
0: mentioned again. Because what are they going to say? Jimmy Snooker was the most popular wrestler in 1983, the year he murdered his girlfriend, and then Vince McMahon put him in the main event of WrestleMania at ringside. Well, there you go. They could have just said that, and we'd have had context.
2: Anywho, so, after that, uh, and and I love, again... At least when he protects the business, he's somewhat more endearing, but he was acting like Orndorff and Piper were really beating Mr. T up, Hogan was. If if they'd have wanted to beat him up, he'd have been beaten. So again, at that point, it becomes the early 90s, just after WrestleMania. And Hulk says that he and Vince mutually decided to part ways, which was uh, basically Vince wanted to use, you know, Sean and Brett and younger guys, and Hulk said he wasn't finished yet. But so he goes to WCW in 1994, and then they gloss over that in a short period of time, because as we've talked about in some of the, the NWO biography. Babyface Hulk and WCW in the 90s wasn't working. And so they had to switch him heel. And then that's when, you know, Roddy, meanwhile, had been in and out of the WWF all that time until 1996. Remember, he was at WrestleMania that year.
0: Goldust, yeah. With the Hollywood backlot brawl. And 94 was him and Lawler, I think. So, I mean, they've been doing stuff in and out, like you said, for a few years. Well, in 92, he was involved in
2: the, the stuff. with. Well, he, in 93 or 94, WrestleMania 94, also he was one of the special referees for one of the title matches that Yoko had. And with uh, in 92, he'd been involved
0: with Bret again, right? 92 was him and Bret, maybe my favorite. I shouldn't say that. One of my very favorite WrestleMania matches ever. One of my favorite matches ever. 93, no Piper. He showed up at SummerSlam 92 to play the bagpipes and then WrestleMania 10 at the garden surprise referee for the main event gets to hit Jim Cornette. What a prize that
2: is.
0: (laughs) I don't remember if he was there in 95, but he certainly was in 96 and that was the end of that run. Yeah. See, that's, that's the thing. Roddy didn't get old in the WWF
2: because he didn't wear out his welcome when they had something that he could, Sink his teeth into, he was there for, but then he had movies and he had other things that was going on. He didn't have to just be there until it got old. And, but then finally, when Hogan gets, you know, the opportunity and has Bischoff around his little finger, he's, I gotta get this fucking win. And they bring Roddy to WCW. And in 96, he already had the artificial hip. Remember, they did an angle about the scar in the whole nine yards. That's right but at least at this point Roddy was the babyface and and Hogan was the heel it was a different you know synergy there and so they obviously made the deal and they showed it where at Starcade 96 Roddy put Hogan out with the sleeper he got a clean win over Hulk Hogan and obviously it was the right thing to do with the situation reversed and Roddy being the baby face Hogan being the heel, but that was in a non-title match. And it set up the super brawl where finally Hogan and as he should have, since he was a heel used brass knucks that he got from Savage to knock Roddy out and pin him. So Hogan in the end got his pin, but Roddy was smart enough not only to not ever do it when he was the heel, But also to wait twelve years until Bischoff would pay him a fortune for one fucking match and some appearances. So it was portrayed as Piper getting wiser when he got older, but he was just still too smart for him, and he never had to do that job, and he waited until they would pay him a fortune to do it.
0: You know, until we, uh, until I watched this and I saw the clips kind of back to back. You know, late eighties Piper, mid eighties Piper, and. When he came to WCW, I wonder how much height he lost after the hip surgery. I think a bit. I think
2: a bit, and also you could tell that, boy, it, 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 that was the only clip or the only series of clips from the '96 WCW run where you say his legs were pale. He wasn't tanned. He he wasn't he wasn't into that. It was probably. You know, maybe put together hastily, I don't know when hindsight twenty five years ago or whatever, but Roddy always looked like he should look, or at least like that he was he was there to kick ass and chew bubble gum, but on that one his legs were translucent, and yeah but yeah, but yeah, we can't end on that, but yeah,, <laughs> but no, really, he's again, he's the only guy. That uh, that avoided the Hulk Hogan leg drop all those years, and think everybody else at one point or another flare on down, got the leg dropped on him one two three brother, but not Piper. And when he did do a job to Hulk Hogan with Randy Savage helping him, how much more of an out could you have, and a, a set of brass knuckles? He probably got. I would bet the biggest one-night payoff of his career just
0: to come in and do it. I am such a mark for that rock and wrestling period and all the footage, and I love watching those old shows back, and it's just such an exciting period of time. I understand why you being in it would see it differently, but for me, when I see that stuff, it's incredible. Obviously, it's worlds better than modern-day WWE. I mean, it's some of the best stuff ever, the Hogan-Piper set up to WrestleMania. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a massive mark for footage from that era from watching those old TV shows. Well now
2: in all honesty, going back and seeing the documentaries and seeing how it was put together. And with the benefit of 40 years of hindsight, and I'm making more money now than I was then. And I don't have to goddamn worry about the (laughs) wrestling business being exposed. it, It was a perfect synergy lineup of wrestling, hitting the MTV audience and the crossover with the rock stars that, you know, it, it some music celebrities were always into wrestling, but it had never been successfully crossed over before. And the just the whole build and the whole thing, it was a perfect storm of events. But I didn't like it when we were still trying to make money opposite um, that with dwindling territories.
0: Well, that was the dwindling WWE Rivals program (laughs) on A&E. And
2: and by the way, we should mention, I guess biography has dwindled out for this season. My guide had the Iron Sheik as the season finale, and next week we get two Rivals episodes with Austin and Michaels and Austin and... Oh, goddamn who? Somebody else. Austin and Brett. That'll be excellent. Well, both of them will be very good, but that'll be excellent.
0: I like the SummerSlam 96 match. I know everyone just focuses on the WrestleMania match, but I thought that... No, not SummerSlam. Survivor Series, excuse me. Yeah. Survivor Series 96. I thought that match was so good.
2: Well, and and for a while, I would get them mixed up because both of them were so good. I, w- I would try to... Now, which was which? And then I, you know, focused and remembered. But uh, that's the thing, is Brett and Austin at that point in time were doing shit that, you know, was the the same in-ring quality as... Of flair and Wyndham, or you know any top nwa matches of the previous decade that were you know the world title matches because you know normally let's face it you know people even wwf fans they remember the angles and the events more than a particular great WWF World Championship match of the '80s, but there's a bunch of NWA World Title matches of the '80s they remember. Well, then the '90s, the WWF had started to catch up, and in some cases, surpass what you know they had been doing.
0: Once again, that was WWE Rivals on A&E and airs on Sunday night, pretty late, and a lot of people, a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, after a program like that, are ready to go down and take a. Not go down, but ready to lay down. Are they
2: ready to go down?
0: They're ready to lay down and go to sleep. What do you have to do to get one of these fine mattresses?
2: You have to, <laughs> I mean, if you have to do some kind of perverted acts. On, That's you know, not what I was saying. Well, no, it's something that I just thought happened to me. You know, when I got my what? Helix mattress, those guys that delivered it said, well, you know, You got to do us a favor before we'll leave this thing. Now, you know that's not true.
0: That's not true. Don't even say that. They are professionals. They only hire professionals and they professionally deliver the wonderful mattresses you're about to tell everyone about.
2: Oh, these guys were professionals. All right. I don't think they were amateurs (laughs) at all. No, they they had plenty of experience. Trust me, I've not been able to get it out of my mind. I showered for so long. Okay, can we watch I'll this it? segment? God damn! All righty, you know. But here's the thing: you talked about going to sleep. Well, you can go to sleep, or you can be put to sleep. Now, there's two different ways of doing it. Now, for example, if you're if you're just laying your weary head down after a hard day working in the coal mines or wherever it is you work, salt mines, coal mines, whatever the case may be, land mines. I don't know whether you're on land or sea. If you're just laying down on a, just a itty old regular old mattress, well, you might have to put yourself to sleep. You might have to take some kind of of sedative or sedative. What are you talking you might, about? You you might, because the, these normal everyday mattresses that they just sell in these mattress stores, it's hard to get to sleep on them. You need you need aid. You need eat a bunch of turkey, get that melatonin or whatever it is. Or you might need to take sedatives. Tryptophan.
0: Or, Don't take sedatives, but you're thinking of tryptophan, not melatonin in Turkey. Well, you trip over the fan if you want
2: a fan on. And and that's a danger because, you, like you said, you could trip over the cord. That's not what I said. But, you know, sometimes, every once in a while, your spouse may have to come in the bedroom and, and hit you over the head with a blunt instrument to no. put you out for the night. That's if you have a regular mattress. Well, if you're sick and tired of having your wife or husband or significant other come in the bedroom when you're laying there trying to go to sleep and hitting you over the head with a blunt instrument to put you out for the night, you need to change your mattress. And no longer will they need to come and do it. Now, they might still come in and try, but you can block it. Because, folks, there's no more comfortable night of rest that you will get than on a Helix Sleep mattress. Now... We've been talking about them for months. They have many unique mattresses, luxury models, big and tall sleeper mattress. That's another way of saying you're a freak of nature and you're either too big or too fat or too long for normal mattresses that they sell to normal people, but they're gonna they're going to cater to you too. And they got a mattress made just for kids. But the problem is if you expect your kid to grow very, very much. They might outgrow that kid's mattress. So so I suggest what you do is, is maybe you stack some stacks of books or boxes of cereal or something around the mattress in case the kid grows too long so his feet are lopping over the end of the mattress just so they don't roll over in the middle of the night and fall out. But here's the thing. You can put these mattresses on the roof and the kids like it.
0: What they no. like it up on the roof? No they don't and you can't they, do that well you can but you shouldn't do that. Don't put the mattress on the, the stars.
2: roof. They can they
0: can learn astronomy. They can do that That's, just on the lawn.
2: Just lay on the front lawn and No, do that. no. They might get run over by the lawnmower. You don't want your kids just
0: laying or they might get shit on by the dog up at on night? the roof in the middle well, of the night? The, does your dog shit at night? Does the lawnmower run in the middle of the night while I'm watching the stars? You know
2: what? The guy that lived next door to me used to have headlights on his riding mower, and he would be out there at 10 o'clock at night oh, when no. it was cool mowing the mowing the daggum yard. So don't put your kids on the Helix mattress in the yard where the dog will poop on them or the lawnmower will run over them. Put the mattress up on the roof. Put the little rugrats up there, and they'll learn about the the constellations. And, folks, again... Put it in their room, on their bed frame, and let them sleep on it. You let your kids have a bed frame? That's an unnecessary expense. They don't appreciate it. Kids don't know from furniture. Cardboard is good enough for them. Anyway, (laughs) folks, also, the Helix mattress, they got models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side. And they've also... Got a special model, if you sleep on your stomach, you can attach a breathing tube and it comes out the other side, and that way you can sleep on your stomach without suffocating. But be careful that nobody sticks that breathing tube up their ass, or elsewise it'll wake you up with a start. They don't offer that,
0: unfortunately.
2: There are also models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. You'll be cradled. You'll be jackknifed and schoolboyed. You'll be rolled up with an O'Connor roll-up, all due to these incredible artificial intelligence mattresses that detect these things before you even know they're happening. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, every Helix mattress has a hybrid design combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. So you just take one of those steel coils and wrap it around your hand, And if a robber or a burglar or second-story man comes in, pop them with those steel coils, put them back in the mattress, the referee will never see it. Folks, right now, the Helix mattresses that you got to sleep on, that you can't sleep on anything else, that I forbid you to sleep on anything else, that come with a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model, and have an incredible 100-night risk-free trial, they all come directly from HelixSleep.com, H-E-L-I-X-Sleep.com. And right now, Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners only. Nobody else need apply. Listen to us. Get a deal on a mattress. That's the way it works. Go to HelixSleep.com slash jce up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows, their best offer yet. And they support military first responders, teachers, and students, as well as the Merchant Marine and the Salvation Army. HelixSleep.com. Helixsleep. All
0: right. Well, let's 12, wake 000, up. 12,000 five-star reviews. Let's wake up and get some wrestling questions here on the show, but check out Helix Sleep. We certainly endorse them and, like them here in Last Manor. Jim, a lot of listeners have sent in questions about some rumors going around about AEW's potential new two-hour Saturday show on TNT. People are thinking that the name will be AEW Collision because AEW filed a trademark for that name. Well, no, they they filed a trademark for Collision, didn't they? Didn't they leave out the I? Oh, you did tell me about that. I believe so, but I'm certain they probably have repaired that Application by now. What are your thoughts on a potential AEW two hour show on Saturday? And to add a little more into this, there are other rumors going around. Again, we don't know how true these are or aren't. That AEW may look at this as an opportunity to split the roster. Oh, God. Whether that's because they want to keep CM Punk away from other people, or whether that's because it would be a good idea to have two separate rosters, whatever their reasoning is. That's another story going around. So what are your thoughts on a new potential Saturday show? And if they did split the roster, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, they got a show on Friday that nobody watches right now, right? And it's only an hour. And all they can figure out to do with it is just put the meaningless mid-card matches that only Marks want to watch to begin with. There's no star power on the program. And it, it, the, you know, it gets bounced around a lot. But actually, in some cases, more people watch it when it's not in its normal time slot. If it's got a good lead in of a ball game or something than when it is in its normal slot. Now they want to add two hours on Saturday. So I'm not saying people won't watch a two hour wrestling program on Saturday. They did it in the past. The question is, what's going to be on that program? And why is it going to be different than the program that they're already doing on Friday night that nobody watches and is not in any way important to the overall scheme of things? And that's, what the Friday program is doing for them right now, besides making the aggravating interludes on the Wednesday night program where Sockface will read off all the matches that we don't want to see at lightning speed. Uh, besides that, it's just, it's, it's either bringing their average down or making them look bad when they've got a program that allegedly from the same company featuring allegedly the same wrestlers that does less than half of what their Wednesday night program does. And, uh, I can't imagine that's a and then they then they add the Battle of the Belts every once in a while to that which went from being a quarterly special that one would think that they would be able to do some kind of showcase on to a uh, a commitment from uh, it appears the network and now it appears like it it's looked at as a commitment from AEW where they just put more shit on that and nobody watches that either. So the concept of having a 2 hour Program on Saturday night is not bad, but with the, what they're doing with their other available television time, they already have. And my God, would this mean that we might actually see wrestlers that, you know, the ones that have been popping up every eight weeks, 12 weeks, six months, whatever, every once in a while, do we see more of them? Some of that would be good, some that would be bad. Uh, It's impossible to say whether it's a good idea until we decide whether or not they're actually going to try to make anybody want to watch this program and present it as something to see and as equal to dynamite. But then, if they present something as equal to dynamite, does that take viewers away from dynamite? Wednesday's a better TV night than Saturday especially with the young people that comprise most of their audience in AEW because young people have a higher tolerance
0: for horseshit, apparently. As a promoter, do you prefer Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening? Well, if I was...
2: You're not going to have a Saturday afternoon show that does any numbers at all on cable. For the, I mean, and of course, back in the old days, yes, on the West Coast, the six o five, you know, TBS show, uh, all the wrestling fans wanted to get cable to watch Georgia wrestling. But if I'm a promoter that wants to run a local market, I would love to have Saturday afternoon television on a local broadcast station. I wouldn't want to have Saturday afternoon on cable. Especially if I had a product that appeals to a younger audience because they're out dicking around doing whatever, and you know, but and as far as a brand split, let's let's bring that into because both of it goes together. It who gets who in in the custody fight, right? Who who gets to go live with mom and who gets to go live with dad when they're only doing. 800-something thousand people now every week, regardless of what they fucking do, and if they take some of the wrestlers that are on that program and put them on Saturday night, does that mean that people will go watch Saturday in addition to, or does that mean they'll stop watching on Wednesday? Or is it a self-fulfilling prophecy that whoever you give the Saturday night slot to will do worse than whoever is on the Wednesday night because Wednesday's a better TV night. Wednesday's been established for three years, and they've already proven they can't launch a second program. Nobody's watching all access. Even though they have access to it, they're not taking advantage of it. Nobody's watching Rampage. Nobody's watching Battle of the Belts. So do you... And a, a, a brand split or a roster split... For AEW right now would be ridiculous because half of their wrestlers are play actors and friends that need to be gotten rid of to begin with. Half their roster needs to split. What they should do is focus all of their best talent on their one Wednesday night program, and make their overall business as strong as possible. But if you, like, I said, okay, let's say, for example, that the EVPs get Wednesday night. And they keep all of their friends and their play-acting buddies and their their, aggressive parkour artists and gymnasts. But they've got the recognized, established slot, so they got the lead out of the gate. Then if you give Punk and all of the pro wrestlers, FTR, Hobbs, I mean, he wouldn't have as big a roster, but you'd have a lot better matches. But, It would be on a brand new program on a night that nobody's used to watching AEW or a lot of TV anymore to begin with these days. So then, or do you flip a coin and just say, okay, winner gets Wednesday? Or do you just, I don't know, it's a crazy concept, start running your business like a business and telling your employees what they're going to do instead of asking them what they want to do.
0: Well, that's not going to happen, because that's not the way Tony Khan runs a company. Whether or not they do a brand split for the new Saturday show, going into a new show, another show, like you pointed out, it's not just All Access and Rampage, it's also the YouTube stuff and Ring of Honor. So it's another two-hour show Tony's going to be in charge of. (laughs) Beyond any of the issues with booking and anything else with that, do you do anything to mix it up? Do you have a completely different announced team than you would get on Wednesday or Friday? What do you do that would make Saturday different? And one of the rumors going around, and let me give him credit because I just saw this report. Andrew Zarian of the Mat Men podcast, I guess has indicated that collision may debut June 17th in Chicago. Well, right
2: there that indicates that uh, they may have some plans since The last time they debuted a new wrestling program, Rampage, it drew the highest rating not only in the history of the program, but one of the highest ratings counting all the Dynamite episodes because that was the debut of CM Punk. But now, if they've booked that and they were intending that, as we know, there may be a problem because of Blandon Cutlet, the... Uh, junior vice president of jock sniffing and assistant jizz mopping over at EVP central. Somebody gets it has, has pissed off and pissed in the, the pot, the coffee pot that uh, they were having the meeting over specifically for that reason. I would assume if we are to believe that, you know, that the reports are true which we think they are, that Tony and Punk have been having talks We're supposed to sit down and work something out, something had been worked out, whatever. They're moving forward with the Chicago date, and then suddenly, you know, some dipshit writes on some website a hit piece on Punk, and the EVP's ball holder retweets it specifically so that it'll piss him off and screw up the whatever arrangement may have been made between him and Tony. And Tony, of course, is gutless and won't do anything about it. So that makes sense. But the question becomes now, are they going to come to Chicago and have an attraction? Or are they going to come to Chicago and have a lawsuit because he's fed up with fucking
0: working with children again
2: before he even comes back?
0: Jim, as a separate topic here, but we can go back to all this in a second, but you brought it up, so I want to ask you a question about the Brandon Cutler incident. Brandon Cutler retweeted a Deadspin article, you called it a hit piece, on CM Punk, and wrote, Somebody Gets It. That tweet wasn't up too long, and he took it down. After everything that's happened, from the very beginning of CM Punk getting there, and... Some of the issues, of course, involving Colt Cabana, who in the general scheme of things means nothing to professional wrestling in 2023, let alone to AEW's business in 2023. Here you have Brandon Cutler doing this. Like we've said and joked about, but it's true, he's only there because he's the Young Bucks bitch, and now this guy is going out there and tweeting something like this, Wasn't this the perfect opportunity for Tony Khan to show people that the games are over? If Tony Khan had fired him for that, because we know it's in violation of the AEW Talent Playbook, if Tony Khan had said, you know what, you right now have made this situation worse, I'm sorry, we can't have you here, would that have helped the situation? Because it would have indicated that Tony's going to finally not be so hands-off? Or would it have hurt the situation? Well... (laughs) I mean,
2: anything that you do to chastise or penalize or slap on the wrist or punish for their actions, you know, Maddie and Nicky and Kenny, it's going to make the situation worse on their part because they believe that, you know, they're in fantasy land and think that not only are they big stars and important EVPs, but that they're the big shit in that company and that they do no wrong obviously Brandon Cutler should be fired on general principle. He never should have been hired in the first place. If they could figure out what he does, maybe they could ask him to stop doing it, but nobody really even knows that. But the bigger thing is he wouldn't have done that had he not been instructed to by his, you know, executives, his bosses. He doesn't work for Tony Khan. He works for his grade school friends, Maddie and Nicky. And they couldn't do it, but he could do it. And then they could say, well, we'll we'll make him take it down later. But he got the point across. And Tony allows this to go on. And if you read the the article, I've known neighbors having a property line dispute that spoke (laughs) nicer to each other than this alleged author uh, who has nothing to do with the company and so therefore shouldn't really have any inside information because he's not anybody in wrestling. He's just some mark that writes on a site. He's mad at Punk. Maybe his girlfriend had a crush on Punk. I don't know what the personal issue is. Or maybe he's mad because he's got a crush on Maddie or Nikki, whoever wrote this thing. I don't know. There's some romance involved somewhere for a, a spurned lover to sound like this. So that's, yes, Cutler should be fired because he potentially threw another monkey wrench in Tony Khan's efforts to bring a biggest star in his company back to work and try, draw some money over the summer. But if Cutlet should be fired, then also Matty or Nicky or both should be as well because they're obviously the ones that told him to do it. Because they, th- they think, well, well, we'll cover for you. We won't let you get too much heat with Tony. We just can't do it ourselves because it'd be too obvious.
0: I've been saying it on the show for a while when we talk about all these things, not to excuse any of the things that were done wrong by Punk or the Bucks or Omega or anyone else. At the end of the day, in my eyes, this is all Tony Khan's fault. Tony Khan at the very beginning could have snuffed this out. Tony Khan, when the heat was building up, behind the scenes, and he was doing interviews talking about liking locker room animosity. Could have snuffed this out. His handling of everything after All Out, he could have snuffed this out. It's still going on today. I've given my two cents on this several times. What are your thoughts on the idea this is all Tony Khan's fault?
2: Well, it obviously it is because of not necessarily anything he's done, but all the things he hasn't done. And it's not like we're making this up because everybody that has left there <laughs> is and of course we've laughed at some of them you know because they needed to go uh but it wasn't like they were run off for being bad wrestlers they're ghosted what is what does tony do when he doesn't have good things he can tell his talent he doesn't talk to them at all and it's been time after time that when people when their deals are up or they're gone They've said, well, I don't know, man. You know, I didn't hear anything. Nobody called me. Nobody talked to me. I couldn't get nobody on the phone. Whether it was Jonathan Gresham, when he finally yelled at Tony and stormed out, or Big Swole, when she said, he smoked my weed and we were friends. And everybody else, he doesn't talk to you if he doesn't have good things to say. And we've heard that from private sources also. People that haven't gone public with that, but if he doesn't have good news for you, something positive to something that will make you like him when he tells you, you can't get him. And then it's that's why he elevated 18 other people to some position in talent relations, from Tony Schiavone to QT Marshall and blah, 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 so that they could talk to the guys and the guys are not going to be mad at them because they know they're not the final say. And they can talk to them and feel like that their comments will be, as Reggie B. Fine would say, delayed on back to Tony. But Tony doesn't fire anybody. Tony doesn't discipline anybody. Tony doesn't let anybody. Tony, he didn't even, when he, when he called fucking, what's his name? Uh, Andre. And said, hey, if you punch Sammy, I won't fire you like you want, but I'll send you home. And then Andre said, okay, and then comes and punches Sammy. So he'll get sent home and paid. He's been on vacation ever since. Yes, he's been on vacation ever since in Hawaii with the lovely Charlotte. At, At that point, Tony said, you know what? Even if this motherfucker does want to go back to the WWE, When I specifically say, don't fucking punch this guy, and he tells me okay and then punches the guy, just fire him. Fire somebody, Tony. Show some guts. Show some balls. Fire somebody for something. For getting in a fight in the locker room, for burying the company or some of its talent online. We're not just talking about punk and EVPs. This has been ongoing. Yeah. Fire anybody that, that... just do something to show that you're in charge instead of just being bent over and railroaded by a bunch of people for a lot more money than they've ever made in their lives to
0: be your friend. That's the thing. You could throw all the money in the world at all these things and get to do the things you really desperately want to be around, and I have no doubt that he loves wrestling as much as anything in the world. It's just beyond the booking issues, which are significant, as a promoter and a boss, he can hang his hat on the successes they've had with live gates and pay per views. But as far as management, people management, talent management, as far as snuffing out any of the problems in the back, he's been atrocious, maybe as bad as anyone we've ever seen. And the only thing that's the saving grace is he does have all that money to throw around so things don't get completely out of control. And hey, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that it wouldn't have been
2: this bad say 20 years ago or 30 years ago because he would have had talent that was experienced and talent that had been in the wrestling business and talent that understood what to do. And So, they, did, so did Herb Abrams. Well, but no, but he didn't have them. He had them making a shot. They None of the guys believed, maybe some of the underneath guys, but none of the stars believed that that shit was going to last as soon as they met Herb Abrams. They took his money per show. He didn't have guys on guaranteed contracts for tens of thousands of dollars a week, et cetera, et cetera. 30 years ago, he could have found Tony Khan could have a core of guys that could have put a pretty decent fucking show together despite Tony and his inexperience. But now these guys have never had the experience or the opportunity to do anything or the knowledge or the willingness to accept advice or criticism or suggestions or even instructions or any interference in what they think they're doing just perfectly. But then as I said that, I think by the same token, if he had a crew of guys from 30 years ago that could have just taken the show and taken it over, they probably would have ended up taking the thing over from Tony and fucking stealing it from him because they they would have been way too smart for Tony at that point in time. These guys aren't
0: too smart for Tony, not most of them. So it's a mess. You know, looking back to a situation you recently brought up on the show, the famous incident where Bill Watts, and not incident, but when Bill Watts was hired by Vince McMahon in 95 and he came in there and Bill Watts always told the story that Vince McMahon pulled over the limo after Raw and said, give me a hug. That's the best or the most <laughs> well-run TV taping I've ever seen. Not too long after that, the famous Titan Sports only has room for one Titan and he's out. He couldn't do the things he really wanted to do, like make Brett the champion instead of Sean. When it comes to Tony and all the problems we're talking about, Tony needs someone, because it's never going to be him, to be able to be not the bad cop, but just the cop. It's not about good cop, bad cop. It's just you need a cop. You need someone to run things there. Do you think it's going to be a similar problem? If Tony ever gets to the point where he hires someone, or anoint someone who's already there to be the person to really run things smoothly in the back that he'll always get in the way that it, it'll it be an impossible task plus if you're disciplined by someone and you have a relationship with tony well you got to do is text him when he's on the plane and you're good it's and i don't know who it would be i mean at one point i would have said all things being
2: equal well boy they they got william regal he ought to be that guy but <laughs> well you know, besides the fact that Regal had, you know, favorite teacher's pets on the roster, he also then saw that it was a clusterfuck and, and you know, boomeranged out of there. Um, I, d- I, I don't know who it would be. I don't know who you can trust anymore, really, or who would be motivated to take the job and put up with the job and go through all of the horseshit the job would entail dealing with these children and as well to your statement. I mean, I'm not saying people would be impolite to him or rude to him or mean to, to Tony. But if you put anybody who had any level of experience at a high level in the wrestling business for even 10 or 20 years, not even a long career, just 20 years of, or 10 years of experience and they had done things fairly successfully or whatever, and then as long as Tony said, okay, you're, this is your job, do it, that'd be fine, but if Tony came in, I don't know which would be more aggravating, Tony trying to tell somebody that actually knew anything about the wrestling business what to fucking do, or having somebody knowing anything about the wrestling business, having to sit there and listen to Tony nattering all of his fucking Mark ideas. Cause I'll tell you, that was the worst part of talking to him on the phone was listening to the ideas. So I don't know who it would be. And I don't know who could put up with being in that position. And the problem becomes it. Then you narrow it down to somebody that needs a job and needs a steady income and they're more motivated to do what the guy paying them wants than do what they're good at doing. But if if somebody didn't need the money and wasn't motivated, there's no way they'd touch that fucking job. To have to work in between Tony Khan and all those goddamn self-indulgent fucking spoiled brat fucking play wrestlers? What the fuck?
0: Well, Jim, to tie this all together and come back around, any final thoughts on the potential Saturday night AEW collision? yeah do we have to watch it oh yeah what are we gonna do i didn't even think about that aspect yeah, I, of it. more more of this i mean if punk's on it that says they're making it a priority if well, mjf we... appears on it that tells you something because he's never on rampage
2: well look you could pretty much there would be no crossover i'm pretty sure if you asked maddie and Nikki. To pick the wrestlers that they wanted on their program and Punk to pick the wrestlers he wanted on their program, I'm pretty sure you'd have completely diametrically opposite rosters to begin with. So immediately, if Punk and FTR were to go to Saturday night, then we could just quit watching Wednesday. And that would be just fine with me. But, as we said before, They're trying to pull one of these fucking old okey-dokes on, well, we'll just give you a show and we'll have a show and we'll see which one they watch. Well, then which one gets Wednesday and the baked-in advantage? Therein lies the fucking dogfight. We'll see what happens.
0: We will see what happens, and of course, that was uh, AEW talk. We'll get some questions in a moment, but... Jim, I can't believe we're going to talk about this again. A lot of people are looking for ways, wherever they may be, to access the internet, wherever it may be. And for some reason, they want you to talk about this again. Well, you know, it's our friends. We haven't talked about them in a while,
2: but our friends at ExpressVPN, they're back around, they're going to try this thing again, because they got so many customers from the last time they ran spots on our program that they've just now caught up. Kind of like us getting the people in the door on the Cult Cornets Facebook group, They've just now cut up on, cut up, caught cut up, up. Yeah. Or cut up. They've caught up on servicing all of the customers that we brought them last time. So now is the time to bring them some more customers. And remember what ExpressVPN, folks, it's the easiest way to protect your privacy and, se- and privacy and security on the internet from all of these people. And we've, you know what? As a matter of fact, I didn't tell you about this, but you know, I had my, Attic spray foam insulated, they found a femur. What? They found a femur. A human femur? A femur was in the wall. A human femur? We think it may have been the guy from the cable company we had before Spectrum. Because he showed up one day and we turned around, he was gone. We just assumed that he had left. But folks, as we've said before, where's the rest he, of them? It, well, we ain't found that yet. Maybe it may have been the rats took him see rats well you know they go up and down in the walls so you see folks the thing is the internet service providers are putting spies in your wall and that's how they know what you're getting on on your computer your internet service providers know all of the things that you've been looking up all the things you've been doing where you are they've got your information and they're going to use it in ways that you don't want unless you do something about it. Now, I know what you're going to say to yourself. You're going to say to yourself, well, I can just waltz right down there to the cable company now with a brick in my hand and take care of this whole thing. Well, no, you can't, because they're everywhere. You knock one of them out with a brick, two more spring up inside your den wall to take their place. That's not exactly how it works. Well, you
0: can't deny that they're everywhere. I, I could deny that you shouldn't hit people with bricks. Well, only if they're in your walls. How are you gonna get? Is, how are you going to get to them with the brick if they're in the wall?
2: Bust a hole. There is not one statute in American jurisprudence today that says specifically that you cannot hit a person in the head with a brick if they are in the walls of your home. Find it, I dare you. Well, I'm not ready to research that. What do I even look for? Well, you look for brick-hitting laws. I mean, I'm just a small-town bird lawyer, but I can tell you that it's never been illegal to protect your life and property if somebody's in your wall by hitting them in the head with a brick. Now, Creekstone, that was the case of Monroe versus Snavitz in 1997. A piece of Creekstone was involved. They haven't ruled on that yet, but bricks are okay. But with ExpressVPN, then you don't have to worry about a brick because they're they're your brick. They hit people in the head for you because they will mask your connection so it's secure, cannot be nabbed and robbed and stolen. Your data will be encrypted. They'll put it in concrete. It's like one of those old mafia movies. They'll put your data in concrete overshoes and they'll throw it off the Brooklyn Bridge and it'll be sleeping with the fishes where nobody can get to it. Encrypted in concrete. And. Did you know this, Brian? You can spoof your location with ExpressVPN. I don't even know what that means. Well, uh, you don't know what spoof your location means. That means that you can make fun of your hometown. I would never make fun of Last Manor, ever. Well, you know, that's not your hometown. That's your home place. Like Aunt Lola would say, the old home place. No, you always want to make fun of your hometown. And ExpressVPN will let you spoof your location every time you tell it where you are It will give you a a free joke about your particular town, whether it be Cleveland, Oshkosh. That can't be how that works.
0: That cannot be how that works.
2: It says right here you can spoof your location so you can have access to content available outside your region. I guess that means
0: you can spoof your, you could pretend that, uh, I don't understand any of it, but I looked up brick hitting laws. Someone posted something, a man threatened to smash my head in with a brick. I was about 20 feet from him and I pulled my shirt up to inform him I am carrying and I will use it if he acts on his words. Is this illegal in Pennsylvania? And the questions have come in. Did he actually have a brick in his hand or was it just words? Let me go down a little further. If you believe you were in imminent danger of being killed, I guess this is more about the guns than the bricks. This is a. Yeah, it's more rip-off. about the
2: gun than the brick because, well, the thing is. You never throw rocks at a man carrying a machine gun, but in this case, he should have thrown the brick quicker before the guy, while he was busy pulling his shirt up and his hands were full, he could have beamed him in the, in the head with the brick and then taken the gun and then shot the guy. Because this is America. You ought to have an equal right to shoot people whether or not they are carrying bricks. What? But nevertheless... What? Back to
0: ExpressVPN. <laughs> I BTN. don't even understand what you just said. <laughs> well, it's not my fault. I said it clearly. It's explicitly your fault.
2: (laughs) Express VPN is blazing fast. You know, a lot of these VPNs, (laughs) Brian, they slow your connection down to the point where it's not even worth it to connect the connection. Oh no. But Express VPN doesn't lag or buffer. Whether it be Michael Buffer, whether it be, what was his brother's name? Edward Buffer? Bruce Buffer, not Bruce Buffer. Edward Buffer. Edward Buffer, he was the one that, he didn't make it. It was Danny, Bill, and Ed. Ed didn't make it. He became a veterinarian. Nevertheless, Express VPN, you won't even realize you have it on. That's what it says once you connect here. You know, it's no maintenance. It's no worry. You don't even, soon you'll not even think about it. And then slowly, it will creep into your everyday life. You won't know it's on, but it will take over everything. No, that's and not how it works. And then one day, no. you'll suddenly realize that ExpressVPN has gained its own intelligence. No. But right now, no. it won't slow your computer down. That's And true. you won't even know it's on. You'll never know it's happening until it's too late. And your connection is what? secure. Your data is encrypted. You're spoofing your location. You've got content available outside your region. I like content that's outside my nether regions. It's been called the best VPN by CNET. And it's been called ExpressVPN by C-O-R-N-E-T-T-E. And right now, (laughs) go to expressvpn.com slash J-C-E and you'll get three months of whatever the fuck it is that they do for you absolutely free. Expressvpn.com slash J-C-E three months extra of express vpn with the spoofing and the encrypting and the lagging and buffering or no the no lagging and no buffering well i ought to get this because right now i'm lagging and buffering if i'm lagging and buffering right now and i get the express vpn will i quit lagging and buffering uh i, I don't know I don't and what about and let me ask you this what is better excedrin or buffering for a headache yeah, cuz the Bufferin's given me a headache, but the Excedrin takes it away. I would go with the Excedrin. Bufferin used to be the best. What happened? Started giving me a headache. Express VPN. You remember that Bufferin? It didn't even sell that anymore. Bufferin, it was buffered aspirin. <laughs> buffered used to be a good thing. Now it's a bad thing. Remember the AIDS diet pills? Yes, right, right before AIDS. <laughs> I do yes. remember seeing that, yes. Ain't Lola used to take those. And and the 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 fucking slogan was lose weight now with AIDS. It didn't work. Well, it worked, but it didn't last. Once again, ExpressVPN, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, they're the ones we were talking about. ExpressVPN.com slash JCE. Three months of this this hilarity for free. You'll you'll be spoofing yourself all night long. Go out there and spoof your location, or spunk it. I don't know. Spoof it with ExpressVPN.
0: What would you do? What I guess what would it be if you spunked your location? I'm going to leave this one to you. You seem like the expert on this. Well, the, the that's, I'm not now. Your mind's in the gutter. Spunk. You know what spunk is? It's it's it's
2: guts. It's courage. It's 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 spunkiness. Terry Runnels didn't know what it was, but Otherwise, and I told you that, didn't I? You did tell me that, yeah. Well, then I won't tell you again. Everybody else will just wonder. She was mad when JR and I said she has was full of spunk. She thought it had another meaning. She said, who told you? Hey, goddamn. All right, it was dripping.
0: Express VPN. Oh, jeez, it was. You had to end with that? <laughs> <laughs> dripping out of her. She was so full of it. Well, you won't have to worry about your uh, internet service dripping. With ExpressVPN. Yeah. What's the promo code? Shady Race. No, no, <laughs> no, no. ExpressVPN.
2: Yes, it is. I, hold on. I'm looking yeah, for it now. I'm it's pulling Express, it It's ExpressVPN.com slash JCE. <laughs> it's where you need to go to protect yourself from the outside forces in the world today that could harm you and bring your empire crashing down around your ears.
0: And you can stream in HD with no issues. Once again, expressvpn.com slash JCE to get three extra months of ExpressVPN. Just open the app, click one button, and enjoy
2: instant protection across all your devices. I wish it only took me one second to protect all my devices. B- you sometimes the- it takes a while to get that thing on.
0: Oh, you are reading the copy. I don't even know sometimes if you're just going off on your own thing or if you're reading a copy. But once again, expressvpn.com slash JCE. All right, Jim. Well, let's get some questions here on the show on the drive through finally. This one sent to corny drive-thru at gmail.com from Jeff Ozzy Osborne in Enid, Oklahoma. Enid, Oklahoma. I spent a month there one night. Where is that in Oklahoma?
2: Uh, the southwestern part of the state, as I as I recall, Jim, or, I've, or at least southern. I don't. I think everything's western out there, but southern Oklahoma.
0: Jim, I've heard you talk many times about things you've learned from your different territory visits and the bookers of same Watts, Jarrett, Dusty, etc. I know you've said the main reason you went to the WWE was to help you pay for Smoky Mountain. But once you got there, was there anything you learned from the WWE machine or Vince himself that you carried over to Smoky Mountain or later OVW or ROH, TNA, etc.? And M-O-U-S-E. Um, well, yes,
2: obviously. And a lot of it was stuff they don't even do anymore. Um. But I've mentioned a lot on the various programs we've done. Geez, Vince used to say this or Vince used to do this or Vince would have had a cow if we'd have done that. And now they're doing it. So a lot about formatting television and especially promoting not just for learning from Vince, but learning from working for the WWF. The they had an incredible staff of live event promoters. And Ed Cohen, who booked the arenas, um, had a great they called them market reps. They would assign, you know, individuals to promote the towns. And they had a great technical crew at the studio. And I picked up a lot just from watching on editing or post-production or whatever. You know, just little things that you could observe and learn. And yes, for a company that big and that successful, just because, you know, it it they didn't always do the classic pro-wrestling presentation of the wrestling doesn't mean that, you know, a lot of other facets of the company weren't, you know, great or something that you could learn from. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and also honestly, just watching Vince try to determine because he had an embarrassment of riches on the talent roster at that point in the, Especially in the late '90s, and you know, trying to watch him bridge from pay-per-view attraction to pay-per-view attraction, and still keep everybody in good shape, was uh, you know the the thing where we branched off after Michaels and Undertaker and Hell in a Cell, and Taker went with Kane, because then Michaels had Austin on the horizon. But, uh, you know, there's a ton of things that you could learn from Vince, especially when he was, what do I want to say, more cognizant and on top of his game instead of worrying about being a publicly traded billionaire and, and fucking, you know, when he was, Vince was more creative, more successful, and a lot more fun to work with when he was worried about losing $5 million instead of $5 billion. When $5 million meant more to Vince, he
0: he was easier to work with. Were you surprised? What did you expect going in there? I mean, you talking about things you learned and things that were lessons that you took out of there. Did you think going in there in the summer of 93 that it would be in any way a learning experience or... Did you think you kind of knew already how they were doing things?
2: Well, no, I had no idea how they were doing. I'd never been to the shows, never worked for the company. And, uh, you know, I knew many of the people there, but not in that arrangement. So no, I didn't have any idea. I mean, I saw their product and, and how, what it looked like on television, but I didn't have any idea how they did it or put it together. Didn't know a lot of the agents had never got a chance to meet Jack Lanza or George the animal steel until I got there and you know so seeing how they did everything how they put everything together of course there were things that if i'd had the power to i would have changed such as those goddamn early marathon tv tapings where we were at the building at fucking quarter to one in the morning some nights um but no i i didn't know how long it was going to last i thought okay this is going to be the heavenly bodies now are getting some shots on WWF television and pay-per-views to make a little extra money and I can promote smoky Mountain Wrestling. How long it was going to last, or what that I was ever going to go there full time, or the developmental program, or everything else, I had no earthly idea.
0: Our next question sent to CornyDrivethru at gmail.com is from Ron Atkins in El Riyah El Ohio? El I don't know. Illyria? Illyria? Ohio. Is Dusty Rhodes officially a three-time or four-time former champion? Midnight Rider won a title. How do we take that? <laughs> uh,
2: we don't take it cuz he couldn't take it because as everybody who was around then knows, a masked man could not hold the NWA World Heavyweight Championship because he would have to reveal his identity to the NWA board of directors to be Certified as champion, and the Midnight Rider would not do that because if he did do that and revealed that he was really Dusty Rhodes, because of the loser leave town stipulation, he would have had to have leave, had to have leave, had to have left and vacated anyway. And didn't they pull the same thing on Mister Wrestling Two one time? Did they? He pull, I, where he won the title and they didn't give it to him because he wouldn't I don't, ask. I don't think he. I don't think he. I don't think they actually put him over where he won it, but there was some kind of deal where uh, that he refused the opportunity or whatever because he would have had to have unmasked or something. It was a way Dusty used it to actually win the title so the people would think he got screwed because he was in a position between a rock and a hard place. He wanted the world title, but he couldn't admit he was the midnight rider or elsewise he would have had to have left Florida. And that just wasn't going to happen.
0: What do you think of that in general? Using that, having a world champion come in, wrestle a, ti- a titled, a masked babyface, and a screwjob finish, fans are understandably maybe upset by what happened, but it makes sense in the rules. What do you think about doing that in general? You you have a problem with that? Or you think it's an okay booking philosophy? It, well, it was...
2: It was one of those things, it was controversial, but most of the regular fans bought it. It was the 80s, mid-80s and late-80s, the vocal small group of smart fans that were on Dusty's ass a lot were very vocal, but there were so few of them that it didn't really have any... You know any impact on the you know regular fan base and the overall business, but dusty would he would try to come up with different ways that he could be screwed out of things or that he would almost be to the top of the mountain, almost get the prize, and then be knocked back down and that was another one of them but sometimes when you, you do that too much as with anything else. Or, you know, it just people get tired of it. And that's why we've been talking about was the time right to pull the trigger on Cody winning the thing? Because have we passed our peak with it? Is it it with Dusty? It was years and years and he won it a couple of times, but there was many more challenges that he came up short and had to come up with creative ways to get out of it rather than just being beaten. And that wasn't because of his ego. That was due to business. You didn't want to beat, you know, the people's hero more than you absolutely had to. But his chase was sometimes more profitable than his reign. But somebody just brought that up, and I'll say this and then I'll quit. Is they said, well, if Cody had won it, then what would have happened? Well, Cody could have had rematches with Roman Reigns, could have defended against Brock Lesnar. The. You know, the thing with Seth Rollins, whatever the fuck, what's Roman Reigns going to do now that's different than he's been doing? There would have been a lot more different things for Cody than there would for Roman, but
0: nevertheless. What did you think in 1988 when Dusty brought back the Midnight Rider, this time not in Florida, (laughs) but for Crockett, did you actually think it would work? (laughs) No,
2: that—it didn't have the same spirit— it it that had come after Crockett's business had been on the downslide because of as we've talked about all the purchases of the different territories and new talent even if it was great talent there was a bunch of it couldn't be absorbed and then that came along and and I've told the story but we were there in that night in Roanoke at the civic center it fucking rained and it was wet and they had to put Dusty on that horse, and and that horse had to ride up that steep concrete ramp in the back of the Roanoke Civic Center to come out down the ramp then into the people, and this was on television and everything. And I've never seen a fucking horse struggle. It was looked like a, a deer on ice trying with <laughs> Dusty's 350 pounds, trying to walk up that slick concrete ramp in the back of that building. We thought they were both going to take a bump before they got out there. And it just, it, it didn't work at that, it wasn't Florida five years beforehand, it didn't work
0: at that point. Jim, our next question sent on Twitter, using the hashtag corny drive through. is from Grant Cameron, would making Ivan call off the territory-traveling NWA champion worked? Or have worked, I guess it should have been said. <sighs> and hello Grant, by the way. um,
2: I, You know, he was a fantastic worker. His promos weren't the greatest in the world, but he had the Russian accent down, and in the 70s, that was especially, that was hot. So he didn't fit the, he was more gimmicky than most of the NWA champions until Flair, who was flamboyant and et cetera. Uh, But at the same time, Ivan's work was every bit as good as you know, uh, the highest level guys. So the fact that he was a Russian heel and could come in and defend against the area's baby faces would have worked. But in those days, the NWA champion also had to be matched up against a lot of the area heels. And I don't know whether they would have wanted to do that or not because a Russian coming in would Trump just their regular normal American heel. What, what do you think, Brian?
0: It's interesting. I mean, Ivan Koloff, think about where he could have gone as the NWA champion, could have gone to Mid-Atlantic. Would that have worked?
2: Yeah, well, because it, it did later. When Ivan was on top in the Mid-Atlantic territory when he was in his middle 40s. That's right. And 50. so he certainly could have hung there 10 years
0: earlier. Ivan Koloff going into Georgia, feuding with the likes of... As NWA champion, feuding with the likes of Bob Armstrong or Tommy Rich or, yeah. you know, various other people. Would that he affect?
2: worked Georgia and worked with a lot of those guys. Worked Florida. Um, I, I I mean, as far as, as in the ring and with the opponents that he had on the babyface side, yeah, he definitely could have worked. I don't know. Again, you know, a lot of times Harley was was a baby face in a lot of cases when he was in his home territory.
0: Whereas Ivan was, <laughs> they would have had to run Moscow for
2: him to be a baby face in his home
0: territory. How would Lawler versus a champion Ivan Koloff have worked compared to Lawler versus, let's say, Harley Race?
2: <sighs> Actually, probably would have been better because it would have been easier because they would have hated Ivan right off the bat because he was a Russian, and. Ivan, uh, I for whatever reason, Ivan Koloff came through the Tennessee territory one week in 1975. Maybe it was two weeks. I don't know. But he only made Louisville once, and he was also, I think, on a card in Memphis, and he was also on a card in a couple of other of Nick's towns in a preliminary match against Norvell Austin in Louisville, and. When I saw the card in the newspaper, I was like, Ivan Koloff versus Norvell Austin? What the fuck? And he was here the once, had a great fucking match, took a huge backdrop, as I recall, from Norvell Austin, and won because it was Ivan Koloff. He wasn't going to come down and do a job in a preliminary, and we never saw him again. I don't, maybe he was on vacation,
0: but he, uh, him and Lawler would have torn the house down in the 70s. You just said something interesting about seeing his name in the newspaper when you went to see the card. What was the process like for you as a kid to find out what the card that week was going to be in Louisville
2: well in Louisville might it might have been different than some of the other towns in the territory in Louisville. The newspaper ad was in the Sunday paper in the early years. They put it in the Sunday paper and also in Monday and Tuesday and the matches were Tuesday night. But then later on, I think they Want wanted to save money. But the card was in the Sunday paper for if you missed the TV show on Saturday. And then sometimes when TV got bumped to Sunday, you may have been able to read the paper and see what the card was before you watched the TV show, but it was for the following Tuesday. That was the promotion. Your television show that aired on Saturday gave the card and had promos for the matches, and the TV or the uh, newspaper on Sunday listed the card in the ad in the sports section. And unless they had Bachwinkle coming in in 82 or something really big going on and they'd buy a few TV commercials on Channel 3, that was the extent of the advertising and sometimes radio. But not a lot of times it'd just be the wacky DJs talking about that they were the ring announcers. That was the promotion for the card every Tuesday night. The tickets went on sale Monday morning at the Louisville Gardens box office, and they were on sale Monday from nine to five and Tuesday from nine o'clock until match time. There was no ticket master, there were no uh, satellite ticket outlets. you either got them at the box office at the gardens or you walked up that night and that's the thing is in the territory days, your advance On a regular house show, a regular town that you ran every week or every two weeks, every month, whatever regular schedule, your advance would be twenty-five to thirty percent of your total house. In other words, if you did ten grand, your advance was three grand. You would triple or quadruple whatever you had at five o'clock on day of the show for an advance sale. You would your house would end up being three to four times that. On spot shows at local high schools or wherever the fuck, it was eight to 10 times. Whatever your advance was, your house would be eight to 10 times that. Now, and I found this out in Ring of Honor 10 or 15 years ago, the advance of a wrestling show now these days is like 90% of the fucking house. And it was, and the tickets were cheaper then. You didn't have any. Ticketmaster fee or a service charge or whatever you just went to the box office at the building and paid five dollars for your fucking ticket.
0: I wanted to ask you that how do you think things would have been different in the territory days for both the promoters and the fans if you know as opposed to a ring of honor running a rec center or this place or that place, if you're running a regular territory and the big buildings or the semi big buildings in your town were ticket master buildings, and every ticket was going to have all those fees attached to it, How would that have affected? the territories and specifically a weekly territory probably put them out of business
2: because we had, we had to pay a ticket master fee at the Knoxville civic Coliseum, even back in the nineties, it was whatever it was like 25% of every or 25%, 25 cents for every ticket sold just to print the fucking ticket out of the thing or whatever. And a ticket master set up blah, blah, blah. Um, And now with the amount of money that the tickets cost, plus the service charges, the fees, the whole nine yards, it'd be ridiculous. No. You could go to wrestling if the general admission tickets were $5, that's what you paid to get in. Five fucking dollars. And here, there was a difference in Memphis now in the in and the Louisville pattern that I just laid out. In Memphis, they put the ad for the Monday night matches at the Coliseum in Saturday's paper, and Sat- as well as Sunday. Saturday's paper, the early edition, came out on Friday nights. So I figured out that on Friday night, if we were in Tupelo or wherever the spot show was, and I was driving into Memphis for TV the next morning, I could stop at the Shoney's, where I always stopped at the breakfast bar there on Sycamore View, and by the time I finished eating, I could go to the corner of Summer Avenue and Sycamore View. There was a newspaper box, and the Saturday morning papers would be out. I could get a paper and read the card to see what I was booked to do. But because that the newspaper ad with the card came out before the TV show on Saturday morning, sometimes it was a dummy card. The main event was false-booked because they would do an angle on TV Saturday morning and somebody would get in a fucking hoo-ha and they would call Eddie Marlin out and say, change the card. I'm not going to wrestle so-and-so or I'm not going to defend the title against so-and-so or it's going to be a tag team match or I'm going to wrestle this guy or we're going to add a match or whatever. And they would change the card. That's why some of the newspaper ads for the Memphis cards do not reflect the matches that actually took place because to make it look more legitimate when they changed it on television, they would actually put a phony card or a phony main event in the newspaper ad. And then they would change it on TV. Everybody in town watched the TV show. And then they would know what the fuck was happening. And tickets in Memphis were on sale at the box office at the Coliseum all afternoon on Saturday. They may have done something on Sunday also, and then all day on Monday until match time. Again, that's where you got your tickets. And the biggest walk-up would come between the matches in Memphis start at 7.30. The biggest walk-up would come between 7.30 and 8.30 for the people that didn't give a fuck about the whole show, but they wanted to see the main event and what Lawler did, so they'd come in an hour after the matches started, but they'd get the $3 general admission ticket and sit up in the top. And plus, that was they got a the chance to go down to the box office and talk to Lawler's mother. Hazel was the woman running the the uh, selling the tickets in the box office. So that was how everybody got that. That was how the cards were advertised, and that was how everybody got their fucking tickets. And again, the only other advertising in Memphis was Jimmy Hart would get up early and go to the radio on Monday morning. And, you know, do that. Otherwise, there was no mass promotion. Everybody watched the TV. And if you missed the TV, you knew to check the paper and see what the lineup was. And this was not something that was unique to the Tennessee territory. It was that way in almost every territory. newspaper ad and the TV show, and that was the promotion. The people knew how to get there and knew how to find it.
0: Jim our next question comes from the Cult of Cornet Facebook group. This was sent in by Brian Schmidt. I'd love to know what are some of the best heel turns of all time? It seems they've lost the plot on how to do them and how they have meaning. Mine was always the Barry turn on a Luger. <laughs> uh that that uh, again that was good for a modern turn.
2: Um but my God, uh, talking about money, the Zabisco turn on Bruno in nineteen eighty led to the yeah. hottest house show run that that the WWF had ever had, where the you know they were selling out every big building in Philly and Boston and the Garden and went to Shea
0: Stadium. We said, um, we said it earlier: Orndorff turning on Hogan in eighty six led to massive business, yeah, including what was that sixty eight thousand people at the Toronto
2: stadium show exhibition stadium yeah there was obviously both times that only turned on dusty in a cage in atlanta um there was i mean you know pick your favorite from what territory you grew up in whether it was you know lawler turning heel or or dusty turning baby face or somebody else stab a dibiase turning heel on the dog and Louisiana to where Grizzly Smith had to take him out of the downtown auditorium in the trunk of his car because people were trying to get him. The beloved babyface turning heel, or even conversely, the hated heel suddenly seeing the light and turning babyface, was really consistently, for 50 years, the biggest angle that you could do in your territory to spark business if it was done right with the right people at the right time in the right way and the reason why it's lost all that impact is because now (laughs) you can't tell who's who baby faces wrestle baby faces all the time for no reason on television it was that was something you never saw in the territory days and a lot of times you would see very few Heel versus heel matches. Um, They used to like to do them in, in the Tennessee territory. Nick did, because he usually had so many heel teams with their own distinct personalities in the territory at any one time. But otherwise, you didn't see a lot of heels versus heels. And so those matches were brand new and fresh. And when somebody turned, all of a sudden, even if those people had been in the territory for three years before if they had been both on the same side you'd never seen them touch each other so it was brand new and plus again when they didn't just turn people that were preliminary guys for no reason it was top guys that needed to be freshened up or you could tell a team that needed to split Patterson and Stevens in San Francisco or just something to to spur business to a new level. And it gave everybody a fresh coat of paint. Now you can't, there's no way to betray someone or commit an act of treachery. That's unbefitting your, you know what the people thought of you because we see it all the time on TV with these fucking baby face. Why are these guys considered baby faces? They're trying to end this fucking guy's career pile-driving him on a concrete floor three minutes into a fucking cold match for no reason. They're not even mad. So, and and then the, everybody wrestles everybody now, baby faces and heels alike, uh, and act like they want to kill each other, even if that's not something that an honorable athlete would do. So there's no, and and you can't tell who's on whose side because the, the effort to swerve everybody and confuse the fans, so they didn't see that coming. That confuses all the issues. I don't expect to open my front door and see a pink elephant on my porch. I would certainly be surprised if I did, but I would have questions. But they'd never answer the questions. So you can't really have a shocking betrayal anymore when it's obvious that nobody's really on anybody's side. And nobody's friends on camera they're just friends behind the scenes that try to get each other jobs
0: make any sense jim our next question also comes from the cult of cornet facebook group this one was sent by matt k barry windham better as a baby face or heel oh um Well,
2: honestly, babyface, because he was, in 1987, he was a babyface, and I think that's the best he ever was. Against Flair in those matches for the title, whether it be the Battle of the Belts or the Crockett Cup in Baltimore, Barry was a really good heel and a better promo as a heel than a babyface because he he felt more comfortable speaking that way. But, God, just the way he could sell for a guy that size, Still, you know, fly through the air with that grace and take the bumps that he did while he was six foot six or whatever. I I just loved his work as a babyface.
0: He was classic. What'd you think when they turned them heel in '88? Did you think it was the right movie Were you surprised that they would take someone well, who seemed to be a classic babyface even at that time and turn him?
2: Well, I wasn't surprised, and and I mean, he did a good job as a heel too, and as a member of the Horseman. That was, you know, I'm not saying he was not good. As a heel, I'm saying I just thought he was so, so incredible as a babyface. I loved to watch him sell and make the comebacks and the, the whole nine yards. But, um, you know, with the, uh, with the black glove and a little bit more blackjack-looking outfit and as a heel and a little bit better promos, and he fit with the Horseman better than Luger because the Horseman was always is sort of presented as and maybe intended to be the elite level of talented wrestlers and luger fit in terms of you know his physique and his snobbery but at that point in time in his career he was not the worker that the other guys were
0: jim our next question from the cult of cornet facebook group was sent in by jared reitman author bill zemi recently passed away And in his book, Lost in the Funhouse on Andy Kaufman, Jim was one of the wrestling personalities he talked to. What does Jim remember about talking to Bill Zemi about Andy Kaufman?
2: Not a goddamn thing. That you just said that, that's the first time that I remembered it. I have the book. (laughs) It's been, how long
0: has that been? It came out in the late 90s, I think. '99 yeah, maybe. It,
2: it, I was going to say 20 years or more. I've forgotten that he talked to me. I didn't recognize his name, and I have the book, but I haven't read it since I got it.
0: All right. Well, Jim, this question— Great was- answer for that one. That was horrible. This question was sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from John. What would be your top five entrance themes in wrestling history? Oh, my God! Um, and you can't put yourself on the list
2: well, no, and I mean, I mean, I don't know what the names of all the stuff that Jim Johnston composed for guys. I don't know the technical names of them I mean Austin's music is classic, that's almost unforgettable um back when in the territory days when we were using you know real music and or stuff that the guys did themselves. I mean, nobody remembers this, but one of the best entrance songs was Adrian street. Imagine what I can do to you, his own record that he would say it was, it was, it wasn't necessarily going to sell a million copies, but as far as fitting his entrance, it was great. And Jimmy Valiant, when he did son of a gypsy in Memphis, that was fucking classic. And it was him and it fit. um, you know, that with the, the fabulous ones with Everybody Wants You, when they first started doing that, just because it was the first, they went through a lot of songs. They used whatever was, you know, hot, or as Adrian would say, whatever was top of the pops for a couple of years there rotating. But the first, you know, Everybody Wants You, Billy Squire the, the did the video too. That was fucking great because it was the first MTV tag team. The Freebirds. Obviously, that was iconic. But I mean, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of times where guys' music, especially when it was a popular song that we could just use back in those days, but fit them so well you can't imagine them, you know, doing anything else. And then and you can see that when you go back at some of the dubbed over WWE Network stuff and they put the generic music in and you go, oh,
0: bleh. um. Should Jim Johnston still have a job in wrestling? Should he still be doing something in wrestling, producing theme songs? Well, I,
2: I don't have anything against Jim Johnston. I think he's taken on somewhat of an iconic position. It, it, it's it, he's not Lennon and McCartney. Uh, having said that, he did a much better job of composing music than I could. I don't know. It, it is you know. He's probably as good at it as anybody else, but I, I, I'm i trying to think of a, a strong reason why Jim Johnston has been wronged by the wrestling industry because he is not in it anymore. But at the same time, I can't knock anything that he did do. I just think some people are just fired up over, oh my
0: God, the way they treated Jim Johnston. All right, Jim, our next question sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com. Oh, did you give your top five entrance musics there? Did we Well, do no, five? that's what's what I, I mean. If I had a list in
2: front of me of everybody who ever came out with music, and then I would, I loved, in OVW, I loved the Eminem, Matthews, Nitro, and Molina entrance. Yeah. Where they used, what was it, Saliva, Superstar? But they fucking made it. They did all the other shit along with it.
0: Um. Who's your favorite current? Uh that's not even a way to phrase it. What are what is your favorite current entrance music or more than one? Jesus, it all it, it
2: everybody's entrance music at some point goes oh, oh 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 so it's I mean Cody's is catchy but it's oh there's a oh and everything. You know, again, there's nothing there's nothing completely different than everybody else's, like The Undertaker's was. And uh I'll tell you if somebody, if Tony Khan likes to goddamn pay for commercial music and put it on his program instead of Jefferson Airplane for dipshit, you know the greatest Entrance music for a monster heel in the history of music is Hell's Bells by ACDC. Just the fucking bell and the vibe and the building, you put some spotlights, you got a monster coming out. That's some fucking good shit. I use that for Bull Buchanan, by the way.
0: Going through something, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. A report that came out earlier today, I have an article here from CNBC by. Ian Thomas. What about Farber? WWE taps Fanatics to sell merchandise at live events like WrestleMania and SummerSlam. WWE will have Fanatics operate its global live events merchandise business, selling shirts and other collectibles to fans at events like WrestleMania, the Royal Rumble, and SummerSlam. Fanatics, which is partnered with more than 900 sports properties globally, also operates WWE's e commerce platform. The deal comes ahead of WWE's expected merger with UFC that will form a new publicly traded company controlled by Endeavor Group. So let me get your first thoughts on this. Fanatics, major company, purchased Top's baseball cards or Top's cards. Well, now, cards.
2: here's the thing. They've got Fanatics in charge of selling their merchandise. Have they done psychological evaluations on these people? Have they had them individually checked out? If they describe them already as Fanatics... Then, fuck, they could be dangerous they could be they could
0: be extremists as well as fanatics. What are your thoughts on WWE now using fanatics who have been running their e-commerce business to take over live event merchandise sales?
2: Well, I thought somebody in that company had been fanatical up until now. Um
0: I don't know anything about this company, obviously, but, but the big story sounds- is actually just wWE not controlling their own live event merchandise for the well, first yeah, time but- ever.
2: But the thing is, well, it's they've passed the point where they're doing any, you know, shade tree bookkeeping anyway. They might as well have somebody in charge of it. But no, it, it's not like Tony Khan announces AEW and oh, guess who's going to be in charge of our merchandise? Matt's wife. This is a major company that does major business with major, as you just said, touring companies and et cetera. I'm if they've already been doing their online platform, which is as we all know, almost as successful as um it, it makes sense. And they're going to they're gonna sell a shitload of this stuff. And, you know, I don't know whether it's going to benefit the boys because uh, probably at this point their royalty rates are so low anyway if they sell a shirt, maybe every time they sell a guy's shirt, he gets a fucking you know, trading stamp or something. But they're going to sell a shitload of this stuff. It's Everything is getting bigger and more organized. It's like they've got the ticket master of merchandise sales now handling their merchandise. It's going to cost all of us, well, not us because we won't buy the shit, but it's going to cost the consumer more. (laughs) It probably ain't going to make the boys that much more money, but it's going to make the company
0: a shit ton. I guess the question becomes what happens to the people in WWE who work in the departments that may be steamrolled by Fanatics. If Fanatics is going to be running all the live event merchandise and are already running the back-end merchandise. Well, any- but, but hold on now.
2: I I don't know that the WWE is in a position where they're they're flying in their own people to hawk the merchandise. They probably have, as they used to, one or two people in charge of, okay, here's what we've got, and they get with the the staff at the building that mans the concession stands, mans the merchandise stands, and here's, here's what we've got. Here's the manifest. Here's how much we charge for it. We're going to check up with you at the end of the night. They're not bringing every fucking guy that's selling a T-shirt to that specific show. Right. So it's not going to be that there's going to be mass wholesale layoffs or firings over this I wouldn't think but maybe
0: I I expect lots of mass layoffs and firings with this and specifically go into going into the merger I think that's the plan
2: well yeah but I'm not I'm saying I think that everybody who is selling merchandise right now at these buildings is probably safe because they're the local fucking schmucks anyway fanatics will come in and take over that
0: Here's the press release. Fanatics today announced an expansion of their existing comprehensive long-term sports and entertainment partnership with WWE.
2: Wait a minute, say that
0: again? Their comprehensive, long-lasting an expansion, of gourmet. Their ex- an expansion of their existing comprehensive, long-term sports and entertainment partnership. Restaurant quality. Which will now see fanatics assume operations of WWE's global event merchandise business. The deal will kick off on May 1st before WWE's backlash. Under the expanded partnership, Fanatics Commerce, the company's e commerce, licensed merchandise, and physical retail operations division, will manage the on site event retail experience for WWE's annual calendar of 300. What was that? On site WWE retail experience? Will manage the on site event retail experience for wwe's annual calendar of 300 plus events do they still run 300 plus events
2: well they have to run hundred because that's a tv twice a week that's true and then if they run if each brand runs two house shows per week that's four per week that's another 200 so there you go
0: fanatics will work closely and collaboratively with world-class teams at wwe who previously operated the event retail business in-house for decades to optimize the event shopping experience for its growing global fan base.
2: How do you... I think they ought to go out and ask some of the fans, how did you like the experience where we picked your pocket and took all your money? Did you like experiencing
0: that? Well, you know, it is interesting not to, you know, rip on AEW or anything here, but we did hear from some people who attended. What show was it that we got the feedback where they went to It was the house show. Yeah. They went to the AEW house show, and there was only merch for, like, three different wrestlers, or there were only t-shirts for, like, three wrestlers. Things sold out quickly. The merch lines were long because there weren't enough merch tables. So, I mean, that's the opposite end of the spectrum, as opposed to trying to do it right. Yeah, and,
2: and again, they're running big buildings, and they're right now selling a lot of tickets in the WWE. So, they need somebody that is used to not only doing this stuff, but, you know, getting it done at a, a quick and efficient level.
0: Jim, our next question sent to corny drive through at gmail.com from your friend in Kentucky, Tim. Just curious, what are your thoughts on MJF's reign so far? It feels to me like a bit of a letdown, as <sighs> I expected him to be more of a controversial figure on TV programming but seems like it has been very mild thus far.
2: <laughs> what? Well, there hasn't been a rain. He won the belt, and what? And we're still trying to figure out which one of these pillows he's going to fight next. When everybody wants him to fight Punk or some other star, or potentially Darby Allen. But we're being, you know, inundated with uh, the idea that. Somebody
0: thinks he ought to fight Jungle Boy and or Slappable Sammy. But that's an important point you just made when talking about MJF's reign so far. The original plan from the best of what we know was it was going to be him and Punk again. And of course, everything that happened at All Out changed that. But that was the direction they were going to go. Well, and and right now, again, has he
2: has he defended the title since he won it? danielson
0: danielson that's right he's had one title defense well it has to be more than one title defense i just am not thinking of anyone off the top of well my head. when did he win it when did he win it yeah mjf
2: title we, we could give you a chapter and verse from 1978 <laughs> but shit that happened three months ago he won
0: it november 19th 2022
2: okay and he beat danielson in defense of it that's who right. else who else? He, he, Ricky Starks. He wrestled Ricky Starks. Boom. There you go. In a TV match. <laughs> Who else?
0: But there's only been one pay-per-view since then.
2: So basically, December, January, February, March, April. It's been five months. He's defended the title that we can think of twice. I don't think the rain is bad yet because I don't think it started yet. And the way that they're moving... It might not for a while. And they've, and also again, there's nobody for him to wrestle that, you know, Darby Allen, if they were concentrating on as a single, I think they've got something there. Jungle boy gets in the fucking way. Sammy, please let's get over that right now. And punk needs to come punk and MJF. The next go round with the shoes on the other foot should be big. If, The EVPs don't get their way and piss Punk off so bad that he refuses to return.
0: Well, that's the problem. What do you do if you have a hot wrestler and you make him your world champion and then you all of a sudden run out of viable opponents for that person? Punk... That's when you get a new Booker. (laughs) Okay. Well, they're not going to do that because the Booker happens to uh, sleep with the promoter. It's the same person. So if you have that issue and there's no Punk... And the pillars are there, and you can't do Moxley again, not that we'd want to see that. The problem with MJF's title reign has probably been just who he's working with because of who there is to work with. Yeah, it's it's basically he's, he's almost
2: alone in the company in terms of people that can fucking stand up to him verbally and in the ring and as a personality and create some conflict everybody else is not on his level verbally. They're doing the same matches that they do with everybody else, and there's, you know, Darby could be different, but they're muddling it up with these other fucking clowns.
0: Is there anyone else there that you've seen, not just people we've talked about having great potential, like a Wardlow or a Powerhouse Hobbs, but is there anyone else you've seen there, whether they're being used right or not, that you think is a younger person that could be built up To be a, you know, because it's almost like you have like a Ric Flair, but you have no Ricky Steamboat right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough
2: and we only get to see glimpses of some of these people and others we see way too much. But no, that, that's the problem is that when Tony decided he was going to take the advice of these three goofballs that he listens to and that he originally built his company around. That's what he limited himself to, because they suggested all the talent to be signed. And there's a million people that can work with Kenny and Maddie and Nikki and do the gymnastics and all the falderall that they like to do that we've seen way too much of. There's a bunch of guys in a company can do that, but there's very few that are serious wrestling talents that can get over on a main event basis and have a match that makes sense and looks good and professional. And those guys have been minimized because they're not in the play friends clique. And I look at FTR. FTR, honestly, are the two best technicians in the ring in the entire company. And along with Danielson, and and look at Danielson, Jesus Christ! They made him a mute practically. They switched him. They not only switched him heel after he was a great heel <laughs> about a year and a half ago. Then they switched him back, babyface. Then they got sympathy on him. Then they put him in with this group of nitwits that he's been associating with. They ran off William Regal, and now there's Claudio and Danielson sitting in a fucking group with the plumber
0: and they're uninteresting. So uh, I I don't know. You brought up punk before and obviously the original plan before All Out was punk and MJF, we believe, because MJF came out at the end of that show in Chicago to confront them. And things did not happen that way. We didn't get to see what was going to happen with The Firm and Stokely and MJF. MJF gets the title in November from Moxley. Another round of Punk and MJF, do you think it could be as special as the first one? Yes, because they didn't
2: finish anything, really. They had one fucking match. And with guys that can talk as well as that, with guys that have following as they do, you can always do something. And uh, nothing has been settled there that you couldn't come back to.
0: Well, Jim, perhaps a CM Punk fan or an MJF fan? I don't know if he has any fans. He's a heel, but someone who watches that guy, maybe they say, "You know what? This sucks. What we're getting is not what I wanted. I want to sue." Well, you know, even
2: the devil has his worshippers, and I'll tell you who you ought to be worshiping. This man right here.
0: Call Stephen. Show or two the rest
2: folks, he sometimes gets red in the face when he is defending his clients, but he does not carry a pitchfork unless he's doing work on his spacious property in West Virginia, but Stephen P New, he's a devil to deal with, boy, and the devil is in the details, and the details when you are in trouble, when you have been wronged, when you've been harmed is who's your lawyer? That's the details, and the devil there is Stephen P New at newlawoffice.com 888-692-8084 because Stephen even though he, he he combs his hair so you can't see his horns on top of his head what but he he will dig right in and he will put the people that are bothering you underneath some fire and brimstone when he unleashes his closing arguments in a court of law people duck and cover like it's a daggum fire drill or an air raid. Stephen P. New and NewLawOffice.com
0: for all your legal jurisprudence needs. That's right, Stephen P. New. We'll have a little bit more information about him at the end of the show. But Jim, before we wrap things up, how about a little guest the program? I was just hoping you'd say that. So
2: you enjoy it as much as the listeners enjoy it. Well, I don't. I don't care about them. I just want to
0: have fun talking to you, and that's the
2: only time I do.
0: All right, well, let's get started with Guess the Program. Of course, in Guess the Program, I go through programs from my collection. I read the card. Jim guesses the location, the date, and any other pertinent information he can come up with. Jim, this first one, I was about to give you the town of the day. (laughs) This
2: first one. We're We're doing way too much of this shit lately. All right, go ahead.
0: I don't know if it's the opening match, but it's listed the first as a plus. Plus, four famous midgets in tag team match.
2: Well, that gives me a lot to go
0: on, okay. El Olimpico, 229 pounds out of Mexico, versus Manuel Soto, 230 out of Puerto Rico. An extra added attraction match, Edouard Carpentier, 228 out of France, versus Killer Kowalski, 275 pounds. Good lord. A six-man tag match, best three out of five falls, two-hour time limit. Mr. Fuji, Toru Tanaka, and Chuck O'Connor versus Chief J. Strongbow, Gorilla Monsoon, and Sonny King. Okay. One fall to a finish. Bobby Shane, 240 pounds out of St. Louis. Versus Jack Briscoe, the All-American Boy, 240 pounds out of Oklahoma. Okay. And finally, the main event, one fall, 2A finish. Bruno Sammartino, 265 out of a Italy. Versus Moondog, Maine, 265 out of Crabtree, Oregon. Okay. Well,
2: the four famous midgets was not much of a clue. When you got uh, Olympico and Soto followed by Carpentier and Kowalski, I was like, wow, this is all over the fucking place. But then when we got to the three out of five fall tag team match, that besides the fact that it's the WWWF, Fuji Tanaka and Chuck O'Connor was Big John Studd when he was still Chuck the Monster O'Connor, against Strongbow, Gorilla, and Sonny King, that's obviously the WWF, Shane versus Briscoe, would have happened because of the Florida connection with Eddie Graham, but he didn't bring Vince Senior didn't bring Florida guys to every WWF or WWWF town or location. It was reserved usually for the Garden. It maybe could have happened in Boston Garden or Philly Spectrum. Bruno versus Moon Dog Maine. That would put because Maine had a run up there sometime was this a title match listed as a title match with Bruno? It is not okay very good because Maine when he was challenging for the title when he had a run in the WWWF Pedro was champion I believe and Taking all this into consideration, this has to be either 1971, two, or three because of Sonny King being in the territory. Chuck O'Connor became John Studd by 74. Carpentier and Kowalski would not have been at least Carpentier. I don't think would have been in the territory that time full at that point full-time either, but he may have been making a shot from Montreal. This, uh, God damn it. I don't think it's Madison square garden. I'm going to say, why, why don't I uh, think
0: it's Madison square garden?
2: Because it, I don't think it's a big enough card. Um, Besides the six-man and Bruno in Maine, Shane and Briscoe would have been an attraction on a garden card, not necessarily a semifinal. Boston,
0: 1972. Pretty impressive. Monday, February 26, 1973. Boston Garden.
2: Ah, okay.
0: So I missed, I missed the year by a couple months. To me, I think the thing that would have been a giveaway that it was Boston was Carpentier and Kowalski.
2: Well, yeah, and obviously because that's closer to Montreal than the garden was.
0: All right, well, that's the first program. This next one, let me put this down. This next one's an interesting one, and it may be easy for you, but it's an interesting uh, program nonetheless. The opening match, Oki Shakina versus Bobby Starr. The second Okay, hold hold on one. Well go ahead, go ahead. The second match, Skandar Akbar versus Jesse James. The third bout Donna Christianello versus what's listed here is Vicky William, not Williams. <laughs> then there's an intermission. She got plural later. The first intermission happens at that point. Coming out of intermission, Rock Hunter versus Tim, and I'm not too familiar with this guy, Gio Hagen. Gio Hagen. And then there are three main events listed. Main event one, Assassin number two versus Dick Steinborn. The next main event, Jerry Brown and Buddy Roberts versus L. Mongol and Tommy Siegler. Another intermission. And then the final main event Ox Baker versus Argentina Apollo.
2: Okay. And what did Ann Gunkel have to say when she handed you this program? Oh, you're so sexy, dear. <laughs> oh, hello, Sugar Puss. This is an Ann Gunkel um, All South Wrestling card. Sugar Puss. a child. Um. Oki Shakina was, uh, he was famous when I heard the story because I was in the Columbus Municipal Auditorium and who it was, one of the cops was there, but also it was one of the guys that worked for Fred Ward told me, yeah, it, Oki Shakina was in Columbus, Georgia one night. Apparently he was a heel coming back from the uh, ring and some guy had a knife and stabbed him in the stomach and walked halfway around him with the knife in him. And since he was a heel and the cops weren't really highly motivated to help, they said, well, we think he's done for. So they weren't going to do much, but his wife was there, Okie Shakina's wife, and actually pleaded with him to call an ambulance, and he ended up making it. Um, Skandor Akbar surprises me on that card. Uh, Obviously, not only before he became a manager for Mid-South Wrestling and for the tri-states territory, Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Missouri, etc. Akbar was a heck of a wrestler who had to... He was the mid-south of the United States version of the Sheik. He was an Arab with pointy boots and camel on his tights and the headdress. But um, he was actually good old Jimmy Weba. So Akbar versus Jesse James, just a preliminary... Um, Ann Gunkel apparently hadn't pissed off Mula because she gave her Vicki Williams and Donna Cristinello. Rock Hunter was a manager and longtime heel in the South and worked for quite a while for Ann Gunkel, as did Assassin Number Two. That would have been. Well, which one was. Renesto unmasked and became her booker. So did that mean that Jody was Assassin Number Two? It I it was think Jody so. Hamilton
0: and Tom Renesto. I think so, because Renesto was assassin number one until he retired, right? Okay,
2: okay, all right. So that was a, Jody Hamilton was ass number two. Uh, his old partner, ass number one, Tom Renesto, was Ann's Booker. Dick Steinborn worked a lot for All South. Buddy Roberts and Jerry Brown were the Hollywood blondes in a variety of places. El Mongol was, was that the El Mongol that was the Yes. Big star in the 60s in Atlanta for the established Georgia promotion. Tommy Siegler was a young up-and-coming babyface that worked a lot in the 70s and then the the territories uh started constricting and he was gone. Uh and then Ox Baker, obviously everybody knows an Argentino Apollo was a huge baby face, and this was 19. 19- either 73 or 74 and I'm going with 73 and it had to be because this would be too big a card for Gunkle anywhere else. It had to be in whatever building she was running in Atlanta at that point in time, whether it was the city auditorium or the outdoor facility, what was the name of it? Not sure. I'm trying to think. Well, one or the other Atlanta, 1973,
0: I'm going to say. The location, Oglethorpe Gym. There you go. The date, Friday, November 24th, 1972. Ah, I I keep missing these years by two months. It's either
2: November of one year or February of another year. Sorry about that, Chief. This is the very first
0: card for Ann Gunkel's All-South Wrestling.
2: Okay, well, there you go.
0: And it's modeled, the program's modeled after the Georgia, well, it wasn't Georgia Championship Wrestling yet, but the NWA Georgia offices program, ABC Booking, same look for the program, just a different logo instead of NWA, it has ASWA, and all the usual wrestlers. I'm pretty sure they use the same printer. Yeah. Coming soon, Wilbur Snyder and Bobo Brazil. Whoa, that didn't happen. (laughs) No, it did not. Neither one. Jim, this next one here. You know, I bet she thought she could get Wilbur
2: Snyder. I bet Jody or Renesto, somebody was friends with Snyder. Well, hey, Bruiser's not with the NWA either. He'll help us out. That didn't happen. Bobo Brazil at the time, 1972, where would Bobo have been working? Detroit. Detroit, I would guess. Detroit, probably. The Sheik was one of the biggest NWA members and was having a fight at that point, with Bruiser. So they were advertising that one of Sheik's top babyfaces and Bruiser's business partner were both going to come in and work together on their cards.
0: Jim, our next card, the opening match, Tom Stanton versus Jim Neidhart. Whoa, okay. Match two, Jerry Morrow and Hubert Gallant Versus Hercules Ayala and Barbarus. Uh, Barabbas. 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 Excuse me.
2: Wait a minute. So it was Ayala and Barabbas? Yes. Okay.
0: Smith Hart versus Duke Savage. <laughs> Mr. Hito and Mr. Sakurada versus Bret Hart and Keith Hart. The Dynamite Kid versus Terry Sawyer. Ooh. And the main event for a championship I won't name as if you don't know. The champion, Jake Roberts, versus the challenger, Big Daddy Ritter.
2: All righty. Well, Jim Neidhart, obviously, everybody knows who he is. And this is a Calgary, well, not necessarily Calgary. This is a stampede wrestling program. I'll give it to you. It's Calgary. All right, it was going to be Calgary or Edmonton probably anyway, but it's a stampede wrestling show. Neidhart, probably as in the rookie year of his career. Tom Stanton worked in Tennessee for a while, came in in 1980 to 81. This is a bit before that, I think. Um, Big Daddy Ritter, obviously, is the junkyard dog. And Jake Roberts at that, t- Jake was, I saw Jake and Sylvester Ritter both here in Louisville in 1977, Jake and uh, they were both rookies. Then Dog went to work for Nick in his end. Jake went somewhere else. Then they both ended up in Calgary. Terry Sawyer had broken in in Seventy-seven, seventy-eight worked here in Memphis was a protege at that time of Luthez Brett and Keith being a team Smith Hart still on the card but this was before then that dog would have gone to mid-south this has to be either 1978 or 1979, and I'm going to go with very early in the year in 1979 in Calgary, Alberta, Canada.
0: The location, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, the Foothills Athletic Club. The date, Friday, June 29th, 1979. Boom! So there you go. right before he became the dog in Mid-South. Right before. All right, good job there. Jim, this next one... Maybe a challenge. The opening match, Frank Valois versus Silverstreak. Oh, boy. The second match, Randy Tyler versus Mario Romero. The semifinal, Oof. Angelo and Lanny Poffo versus Scott Casey and Ray Candy. And the main event, for a title that I won't name, Terry Funk versus Andre the Giant. Well, I was going to say, you got Frank Valois in the
2: opening match, and he, at the time, would have been handling Andre. So that was a, a thing that they would do, is put him on the opening match or whatever. Same thing with Mike and Porky Pig when he would drive the Sheik to a show. Randy Tyler is a name that I hadn't thought of or heard of in 30 years and actually just saw a picture of him on Twitter when Jake had tweeted out a picture of, guess who this wrestler is with me? And it was Randy Tyler and nobody knew it. He's been forgotten. Never heard of Mario Romero or the Silver Streak. Angelo and Lanny teaming against Scott Casey and Ray Candy. So we're we're somewhere. We're gonna be in Texas or the Southwest. And obviously, this is not a, a major town or a big show because it's a four-match card, but with the NWA world title on top, Terry against Andre. But I
0: don't remember the Paphos being in Texas. Well, for the record, let me jump in. I said a title on top. I did not say the NWA title.
2: Oh Okay. Are we in the San Antonio territory? We are not. All right, hold on. <laughs> <sighs> well, the first two matches give me nothing to go on. The Pafos, as a team, that would have been... 75 76 77 in that area but i don't know where they would have crossed the oddball tag team of scott casey and ray candy if it's not an nwa world title match then a regional championship would would again give us give me the idea that we were in west texas then
0: That is the territory. I will give you that.
2: Reason I thought of San Antonio is just with the NWA tied, but West Texas, um, then this could be, is it Lubbock? And is it in
0: 1975? I don't think you would get this town, and I don't think any historian probably would. But it is October twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy-five. Okay. At the Agricultural Palace in Pueblo,
2: Colorado. Pueblo, Colorado. Okay, no, I would not have gotten that, but that is a an area that they would have run out of the Amarillo Funks office at that time period. But yeah, thanks a lot. You threw that one uh, in on me. Pueblo. Got Andre
0: the Giant and Terry Funk. Support Boys Ranch. Attend the church of your choice. How does that support the Boys Ranch? Those are two separate things. Stars on their way to the AG Palace. Your promoter is currently negotiating with many superstars of the wrestling world to display their talents here in Pueblo. Among these men are Randy Tyler, Lanny Poffo, and the masked Silver Streak, who are all on this star-studded card tonight. Is there a picture of Silver Streak? There is not, Randy Tyler. No, there's not. Also, the bearded Frank Goodish, who made his Pueblo debut on October 4th, will hopefully return in the future. Other possibilities for upcoming wrestling cards include Tom DeMarco, Tony Atlas, and Sputnik Monroe. With these great stars on their way to Colorado, Pueblo wrestling fans are almost promised action galore here in the Agricultural Palace. So in Pueblo,
2: Colorado in 1975, you could see Bruiser Brody as a rookie and Sputnik Monroe as a veteran. On a same card. Holy mackerel.
0: And for the record, the title was the International Championship. Obviously, this is a few months before or two months before. Well, not even calendar months, but a month and a half before he won the title from Jack Briscoe. 24. Okay, and the and the
2: international title was the 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 name of the singles championship there in Amarillo at the time because they did a lot of work with obviously since the Funks were American bookers for Baba, international title, and that's Baba was using that also, was he not?
0: I believe so. I believe so. So that makes sense. All right, a couple more here, Jim, before we wrap things up. This one, you could just guess the territory. I don't think you'll get the town. Uh Uh-huh. The opening bout, Mr. California versus Rick Drayson. (laughs) Okay. The second bout, which is a wrestling bout followed by arm wrestling, The Hangman versus Fabulous Frank. And for the record, Fabulous Frank is Frank Monty.
2: Okay, Frank Monty, haven't thought of him in years and years.
0: Go ahead. There will be an intermission, followed by the third bout, Wild Man Jack Armstrong, and I may get this wrong, versus Choi Sun. Choi Sun was Kim Duck, was he not? Oh, I don't know. Let me, uh... I think it was. There's not a picture in here. There's a picture of Larry Zabisco, and it says Big Larry Do. All right, let's uh, go to the next one. Two more matches. The next match listed is the main event, a Hell's Kitchen street fight. Is Don Fargo in it? Fists are taped, no countouts, no disqualifications. Everything goes except choking, low blows, and eye gouging. Chavo Guerrero versus Don Fonzo. Fonzo Fargo. That's when they tried to capitalize on the popularity of Happy Days. And he'd throw the double thumbs up and go, hey! (laughs) By giving Don Fargo the Fonzie
2: gimmick. (laughs) Don Fargo looked about (laughs) as much like Henry Winkler or Fonzie as I look like Diana Ross right now.
0: (laughs) I I like the fact that his name is Arthur Fonzarelli. Fonzie for short. (laughs) They make him Fonzo Fargo. And finally, another intermission, and then the main event... The Masked Scorpions versus Crusher Verdue and Dr. Death. Wow. And it does not have a picture of a Dr. Death here, in case you're wondering.
2: Well, it's not Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Um, Well, we are in California in the dying days of the Los Angeles promotion. Uh, Rick Drayson was a good-looking... Beach, Florida kind of guy type of baby face. Uh, Frank Monty was a longtime tag team partner of a guy named Nick DiCarlo in the 70s in the Tennessee Territory. And Frank Monty also served as one of the Alaskans every once in a while when either Mike or Jay York, who were the regular Alaskans, was not around because he had kind of a beard and could fit in. Wild Man Jack Armstrong was a California mainstay. As I said, I think Choi Sun was another name that they used for Kim Duck around about this time period. And I remember, I think he worked in Indianapolis for a brief period of time because Sam Minnaker at one point, when he was coming in, announced him as Chom Choi. Um... (laughs) The Hell's Kitchen Street fight. Chavo was huge in Los Angeles, or as huge as anything was by this point in time. Don Fargo was floating around trying out different gimmicks. I got no idea who the fucking Scorpions might have been at this point. Crusher Verdue was a, in the 60s especially, he was only like probably 5'9 or 5'10, but he was a 300 pound guy with his huge chest, and he sold out. The Garden against Bruno Sammartino, but that was when... They went to the New Garden. Yeah, and that was when also Bruno could sell out against a fucking rabbit. Verdue was a journeyman heel for a long period of time, but not really a main event money draw. And who knows who Dr. Death was? It was somebody under a hood, I bet. maybe Jean been Gene LaBelle. And as far as the... This is... You said I wouldn't get the town. It's probably some... It's We're in the Los Angeles territory, right? That is correct. Okay. Um somewhere around Los Angeles in the year Fargo came back here in 78.
0: And is this 1979? The town San Diego, and this is San Diego Championship Wrestling, <gasps> August 24th, 1976. Oh, Two weeks so from tonight, I, Andre returns to San Diego. So I am desperately off on that. Three years, holy shit. News flash. I, news flash. Roddy Piper now owns Butcher Bashan's contract after a big <laughs> win at Olympic Auditorium. <laughs> they typed that in as a news flash.
2: So this wasn't necessarily the dying days of the promotion. This was just a rotten card. No, you want to talk the dying days real quick? Uh, I'll spoil this. This is well, 1978. Hold on, hold on. Was the hangman Neil Guay?
0: I believe on so. This?
2: Okay. And who also wrestled in the Tennessee territory in 1978 as Joe LeDuc's French-Canadian partner,
0: Jean-Louis. And I believe um, Bruce Pobans has pretended that this was him, but it's, it wasn't him. It was yes. Not him. All right, well, here, listen to this one 1978. Okay. Fr- Friday, January 1378, 78, the annual Battle Royal show. Colosso Colosetti versus Johnny Rivera. Dr. Oda versus El, El Falcone. Victor Rivera versus Fujinami. The Canadian. That, that really was Fujinami. Oh, yeah, that's Tatsumi Fujinami. One hour, America's title match, the Canadian, the mass Canadian, versus Rick McGraw. The Canadian being Roddy Piper. Yeah. Intermission, Outlaw Ron Bass and Moondog Maine versus Dom DiNucci and Dean Ho. Good lord. Andre the Giant versus The Butcher. For the America's tag title. Was that, was that
2: Butcher Vachon or Butcher Brannigan by that point? Hold on, that's a good question.
0: There is no picture of a butcher. <laughs> just, just the fishmonger. Actually, it was El farron not El Falcone. Excuse me. I was. There
2: little... was an El Falcone.
0: That's why I was confused there. Uh, two more matches. Black Gordman and Great Goliath, the America's tag team champions versus Chavo and Hector Guerrero, who win the titles. And finally, the ninth annual World Battle Royal. The last wrestler in the ring wins $30,000 with an asterisk here. U.S. champion Bob Roop suspended by NWA. That's when he got, uh, that's when he, he tried, to steal the tried to steal
2: the territory, right? That's yeah. when he tried
0: to steal San Francisco. And that's when San Francisco and LA were kind of working together a little bit. The battle Royal was one. Well, I'll give you the last five in the ring. Andre, the giant, Ron Bass, Moondog Maine, Victor Rivera and Hector Guerrero, with the winner being Hector Guerrero. Wow. And that was the, this is 78? 78,
2: January 13th, 78. That was right before Hector came to the Tennessee territory. And boy, he he was a tremendous baby face at that point in time. The people really liked him because he was doing all the, the flying ankle head scissors and the the, the Lucha stuff that still looked good when it was applied to American wrestling, but that nobody else was doing. And, and uh, he really got over well with that. So, but yeah, um, it, it's amazing that California in those days, even when the territory was going down and they were drawing practically nothing, they would, enoki or Fujinami or a legitimate Japanese superstar would pop up because it was, california they're flying in to do business like they had been you know for years and that was the stop
0: all right this will be our final program and definitely our toughest but it's more interesting because of some of the content of the program itself here's the card as listed as it is actually spelled out here ivan kamaroff versus nick kondos out of greece Okay, now is that Ivan
2: Kalmakov and it's a mistake, or is that really Ivan Kamerov, because I think there was one of those also?
0: Oh, you know what? I don't know. I was actually assuming it was Kamelkov, but now I don't know, though. No, I think
2: Kamerov and Nick Kondos, was he... Well, okay, finish the card.
0: Sandar Kovac, out of Hungary, versus Frank Marconi, Buenos Aires. Jesse James, out of Washington. Versus Mike Collins out of Chicago, Collins spelled with a K. Angelo Savaldi, Hoboken, versus Jan Bliers, England. Ooh. And the main event to a finish, the former world's champion, Texas Babe Sharkey, versus Gino Garibaldi out of St. Louis.
2: Wow. Gino Garibaldi, a uh, noted for being a uh promoter later on right was that his brother leo well no gino is the dad of leo garibaldi that's right gino was the dad this is geez the original angelo Savoldi, jan blears before he became lord james blears right correct Old Tallyho himself, Jesse James, wrestled for forty years. Sandor Kovacs in the ring. Nick Condos. How many Jesse he James not... were there though? I think it was all the same one. He oh. was just—he was one hundred and seventy-five years old. Um, I saw him do jobs in the seventies. He looked like he was fucking sixty. Uh, was Nick Condos the promoter in Baltimore later on, or am I? Oh, I don't know. I'm not he sure. May have... This is uh this is in the 40s, is it not? This is indeed in the 40s. <sighs> I am uh, I'm almost going to say we're either in the northeast or
0: the northwest. We are in the northeast. Okay. The card is January 9th, 1947. Well, I was going to narrow it down even more than that. You, oh. you didn't have
2: to jump in. Oh, forget I'm sorry. I thought you were done. I you gave- damn no. I was going to say I, we're in the Northeast or Northwest, but I was going to try... I was going to say somewhere in the World War II years. So I was. that's as close as I was going to be able to get. And this is not... Uh, The only other thing I can say is I don't think it's a major town card, but it's in the Northeast somewhere in New York, Pennsylvania, or Jersey. Go ahead. Wilmington, Delaware. Son of a All right, or Delaware. It's right there in the corner.
0: We keep forgetting about it. Hey, main event to a finish. What do you think of using that to a finish, kind of to guarantee there won't be a screw job or anything? Well, it, that's actually not what it meant back in
2: those days. A time limit match and a finish match were two different things. A match, a, a, If a match had a time limit, it was like one fall with a 60-minute time limit. But a match that was a finish match means one fall to a finish. It doesn't mean it's no disqualification or you can bring in a sandblaster, but it means it will go to, until there is a legal winner, a finish match. And there, in the old days of wrestling, going back to the 20s and 30s, there were actually not time limits on most of the main events and especially world title matches. And there was kayfabe and real reasons for that. The kayfabe reasons were that, you know, they wanted to see who the best man was. The real reasons were they wanted to keep the fucking betting going when that was still a thing. How much longer can it go? I'll bet you it can't, whatever. And then it was actually St. Louis, I believe, that was the last of the territories in like 40s 50s when you know modern wrestling and television came in they were still having finish matches for the title and then they instituted a time limit so a, a, a either a match to a finish or a finish match or whatever didn't mean no DQ, anything goes, must be a winner. It was like, there's no time limit. We're going to wrestle till one guy wins.
0: The other interesting thing about this, this is the first program of 1947 for the week of January 6th. It ranks the 1946 heavyweight rankings in 10 groups of four. The first group of four, Frank Sexton, world champion, Primo Carnero, runner-up, Steve Casey, Irish champion, and Enrique Torres, Mexican champion. And Steve Casey
2: was the world champion for Paul Bowser in Boston when Boston was its own thing and drew huge money during the 40s and into the early
0: 50s. And I believe this program, or at least uh, most of the programs I have from uh, this line of programs are from Boston, so that's why I was surprised, even, even I was surprised, they were running Wilmington with this program. The second group of four, Whipper Watson, Canada, George Temple, California, (laughs) Shirley's brother, Babe Sharkey, former world champion, and Bill Longson, St. Louis. The third group of four, Gino Garibaldi, Maurice Tillet, the French Angel, George Becker, and Francisco Marconi. And the fourth group of four, Bobby Bruns, Hardy Krusskamp, Don Lee, out of Virginia, and Clifton Gustafson, or Gustafson—I'm not sure—Cliff Gustafson, Gustafson of Minneapolis. So it's weird that they're ranking everyone in just groups of four. Then they do the light heavyweights. Well,
2: and all of those people weren't wrestling in that territory. Uh, they were just taking the the top guys from different parts of the country and and grouping them in uh, you know in that fashion. A Very different way of doing it.
0: Here are the first group of four for the light heavyweight rankings in 1946. The champion, Maurice LaChapelle. Then Jan Bliers, champion of England. Stu Hart, Canada. And Gus Rapp from New York. It's crazy considering the year, like, this picture of Duke Kiyomuka here. And it is Ivan Kamaroff. You were right. Thank you. All right, and that was Guess the Program. And you? this was your program. I'm going to leave you one more so we end on a positive note here. Okay. Four midget tag team match. Again. Plus other bouts. Including such stars as Tony Gurria and Salvatore Bolomo. Rocky Johnson versus superstar Billy Graham. Andre the Giant versus Samoan number one. And the main event... Jimmy Superfly Snooker versus Ray the Crippler Stevens.
2: Oh good lord. Um well obviously we're in the WW well the WWF. Yeah. Um I've got to say it's either 1981 or 1982. It's not a major. Town, probably something like an Allentown or a uh spot show somewhere in, in Jersey. Uh or potentially maybe a Springfield Civic Center, or something like that, but it's not an A town. Uh out of town up in the air, I'm gonna say
0: 1981. The date? Sunday, March 13th, 1983. Oh! The town, New Haven, Connecticut, the New Haven Coliseum. Okay, New Haven, but
2: 1983. Yeah, that makes sense now, because what the fuck? Samoan won and Snuka and Stevens, because Stevens was in the Carolinas in 81 at that point.
0: All right. What chance does Samoan number one have against Andre the Giant? A good one, S- based on the fact that we do not know what Afa can do by himself. Hence, how can Andre prepare for his match? Plus, I've heard that Captain Lou Albano, office manager, has supposedly found a weakness in Andre's methods. I'm really looking forward to this bout. According to Al Askew from Ring Ramblings, I'll ask you? Yeah, who, did, who wrote this? Who wrote this? Probably Jeff Walton or someone. But <laughs> well, with that, the drive-thru has closed. Uh, let's get one song and then we'll get out of here. If I can find a song. Where are the songs? Here are the songs. Let's go to this one. You You find the songs that make the whole world sing. You find the songs of wrestling and other things. Well, this first one is from The Bard of the Borders. Let's go to this.
1: Southbound down, Dominic Ria fucking. He's done some <laughs> things no man's done before. DOMINIC Aria in leather, so he beat up his father. Look how grey your son's a boy no more. Oh, Dominic's too tall, kicked edge in the bars, Florida's dad with a stiff right. But Ray didn't find it funny, when Dom jumped in bed with Mommy. Now Rhea makes make sure that Dom is up all night. (laughs) Southbound and down, Dominic Rhea fucking, he's done some things no man's done before. In an interesting twist Rhea comes on Dominic's tits Leave that bar shaking on the floor
0: Alright, it appears to be just a banjo break very interesting set great. of weeks yeah what do you think of uh, the ballad of dominic and Rhea as it is I'm, entitled
2: here i'm i'm all for it i'd like to hear the <laughs> sequel whenever they come up with one
0: <laughs> well thank you the bard of the borders <laughs> for sending that in let's not end on that let's get one more here because that went pretty quick this one sent to corny drive through gmail.com from jazua lance big fake cheeks and then a flat botox forehead <laughs> And then all of a sudden, jet black hair and a mustache. A woolly worm mustache. Woolly worm mustache. That's always the interesting thing. You know, anyone who's ever grown a mustache... I've never done the move where you either shave off the bottom or you shave off the top. <laughs> like the woolly worm mustache. Wo- wo- woolly worm mustache. Whatever's there, that, that's what grows In between the
2: nose and the lip, is that's, that's kind of the area, but it, this is just, it's... <laughs> like a woolly worm mustache. Wo- wo- woolly worm M- mustache. And I almost 80 years old and you've never had something like
0: that before in your life. How does that idea strike you? I think you hit on it earlier on, joking around. Mustache. He remembers being a kid and seeing Errol Flynn in movies. (laughs) And he's like, you know what? I always wanted to be swashbuckling. A woolly worm mustache. Woolly worm.
2: Mustache. (laughs) A woolly worm mustache. Woolly worm. mustache
0: all right well yeah we said all those things didn't we we certainly did and we heard them back played to us thank you (laughs) Joshua lance certainly won't get songwriting credit for that one let's not end on that let's go with this is a revision i sent the wrong file please take the older less disgusting lyric i'm not gonna i'll screen that one first <laughs> this the one, less disgusting lyrics. This one is sent to through at gmail.com from the main mix. Let's end with this one.
1: Yes, <laughs> I'm really shitty wrestling doing on the internet and my TV. Been a couple years, and Twitter's doing about the booking of a money mark. He spent his money on countless wrestlers, a bunch of jobbers who cannot be used. But Twitter thinks that they are the next coming. Given an age, and Twitter will want to. The trouble today with wrestling. The marks won't stop. One from New York, he is yakety yakin. In the morning, call lets Let some drop. There's a Twitter one that they keep posting Where the fingers ever stop Tony Khan is booking like a free team He's had the plans since 1995 We were promised an alternative product Not alternative WWE The trouble today with wrestling Yeah! The marks won't stop The marks won't stop The marks won't stop The marks won't stop Keep telling them how it is. We'll keep listening. They'll keep complaining. But it's just how it's gonna be. Shitty bucking. Shitty television. It doesn't matter. We got great podcasts. One from New York, he is acting acting. In the morning tour that lets them drop. There's a Twitter one and they keep posting. Where the fingers ever stop. Tony is looking like a free team He's had the plan since 1995. We were promised an alternative product. Not alternative WWE. The marks won't stop. The marks won't stop. The marks won't stop. The marks won't stop. Marks won't stop.
2: Thank you for your buy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, there it is. The main mix with a Wait cover. Wait a minute. Hold on a here. The classic gotta... fear song, The Mouth Won't Stop i didn't where's my
2: dagum? oh god damn it there we go there we go i couldn't find the applause I, I couldn't get the clap i heard you got the clap well i got rid of it
0: though were you um at all a fan of the band fear i didn't know there was a band named fear don't you remember john belushi got them on it's a famous moment he got them on saturday night live at, after he left like in 1980 they brought slam dancing to New York. and
2: Oh, that's right. That, I didn't know that was their name. And they just went crazy on a stage and people are like, what the
0: fuck's going on here? The lead singer has one of the greatest names in the history of punk rock. Lee Ving. <laughs> <laughs> well, are we leaving? We are leaving with that. The drive-thru is closed. Where's my, uh, here we go. Ah! <laughs> hey, check this out. I just made a theremin with my daughter yesterday. I'm still playing with it. I got to stop. That's your daughter? That's something I made with my daughter, a musical instrument. Oh, I was going to say, she sounds annoying to me. Of course, you could hear more annoyance this weekend on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast. More annoyance, even more annoyance. I can't speak. Next week, right back here on the drive Through. Wherever you find your favorite podcast, and of course, stay up to date with everything happening, including early clips and sometimes bonus clips, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Almost 350,000 subscribers be one of them today. Go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll be the first thing that pops up. Full episodes, clips of episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork and some of our great guest artists as well, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. And of course, remember, you can go through the archive today, patreon.com slash Cornette, for only $5 a month. You get access to the archive going back to 2013. Patreon.com slash Cornette. You can follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornette. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com. Available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget about the wrestling news. Each and every day, your free daily wrestling newscast. No opinion, no star ratings, just actual news for free. Get it directly from TheWrestlingNews.com or look for Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Coronet's Collectibles at JimCornet.com. What's going on, Jim? If you're waiting for
2: a package, hundreds of them are coming out this week. And if you haven't ordered your package, jump on it because what are you waiting for, Christmas? I'm waiting for a package, Sugar Puss. Well, I'll give you my package as long as you'll unwrap it. Get that
0: package today at jimcornett.com. After you unwrap it, you may want to sue. The drive-thru is brought to you by the law office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at newlawoffice.com. But until this weekend on The Experience, and next week back here on The Drive-Thru, for Jim Cornett, I'm the great Brian Last. Well, it's Jim
3: Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fuck and Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the Young Bucks, the Rednecks and Dumb Fucks, and them door corner bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella. And Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman Connie's drive through Connie's drive through Connie's drive-thru Well, it's all elite wrestling Tony Khan is investing his millions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of cornets and to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow-up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines. With blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls, like Kenny Omega, love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Peter, everybody. Corny's drive-through, Corny's drive-through, Corny's drive-through, Corny's Corny's drive-through. And now here are your hosts, Jim Cornette, and the great great Brian Lass.